Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with uh, Pastor Nick Gibson and David Devil. Uh, today, we're doing a podcast on Protestantism, kind of, and Catholicism, and what are the similarities, what are the differences, uh, and and so we thought let's bring on a Catholic uh, to to represent the the Catholic side of things. So, uh, David Devil has been on uh, Optive Theology podcast before. We did a podcast on G.K. Chesterton, uh, but to to get us started, David, you kind of wanted to give everybody another introduction to yourself. Tell them who you are and, and what you do and and things like that. Sure. So I'm uh, currently at the I just moved four months ago to, to uh, Sugarland, Texas. I'm teaching at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas. And currently I'm teaching in theology. I'm teaching graduate students uh, Catholic seminarians and and undergraduates as well. My background is that uh, I grew up in northern Indiana, Bremen, Indiana, if you know it. Uh, I grew up in a Protestant family. My dad was a graduate of Moody Bible Institute. Uh, we grew up in evangelical churches, and then I spent uh, the, the rest of my childhood and early young adult years in the Christian Reformed Church, the Dutch Calvinist tradition. And I became a Catholic uh, 25, 25 years ago in uh, nineteen ninety seven. So uh, uh, I've uh, I, I've been teaching then mostly in Catholic uh, circles, but also doing some ecumenical stuff. I spent nineteen years at the University of Saint Thomas in Minnesota, so I'm at a different different Saint Thomas, and I was teaching more interdisciplinary things and uh, editing a journal there. So. Wow, that's awesome. that's that's probably enough about me for the moment. Yeah, awesome. And I guess Nick, you are usually you're on you're the co-host of this podcast, but you we really do introductions for you. So why don't you just introduce yourself and tell everybody who you are and what you do and, and that type of stuff. Yeah, I'll well. do it specifically in relationship to these questions too, which I don't normally do. Yeah. So I grew up Roman Catholic. My mom met Pope Pius the twelfth, and um, that was her. She was he was like her confirmation bishop. It was like a special audience deal. Um, so I come from like an Italian Roman Catholic family. My dad's line goes back to New England Puritans. So when they got married, my dad consented to kids being raised Catholic and all that. Um, and so uh, went through confirmation. About the same time I went to confirmation, went to like like an evangelical Bible camp kind of deal, which got me reading the Bible. I started reading the Bible and um, I asked my priest questions about it. The particular priests in where I was was very rural. And so we tended to get um, Canadian priests at the very end of their ministries who were not super on fire for the Lord, you might say, like in a certain way. And most of them at that point had been um, educated at pretty liberal Catholic seminaries. So the two priests that made up the most of my childhood didn't believe in the Apostles' Creed in any kind of literal way. And so that was very disillusioning for me. And But like you can understand, that's not a shot against Catholicism, right? That's the particular pastors priests that I had. They treated me very well. I was an altar boy, that whole bit, right? Um, but through that process, I began to read the Bible. It seemed to be that there were significant doctrines that, as I read the Bible, didn't seem to square. I also think I, I knew I was being called to ministry in some way. I did not feel called to celibacy. So I was really interested if those two had to go together, biblically speaking. I became very convinced that they did not go together, biblically speaking. Though I can see wisdom in a pastoral office being single, like I, I totally agree with that given my, like my own travails with my family life and having four children and trying to take care of Christ's flock. I'm not against that idea. The idea that it became sort of a mandatory functionally in the history of the church is where I object in, relative to the apostles and 
the church's life and so on. And so that was also a break for me, like that the, the church of my youth didn't invite me into its ministerial because of a claim it made that I didn't think was biblical or historical. So some stuff like that, transubstantiation was more of a bit then than it is now for me. Um, and so I ended up moving towards Protestantism. And it, and I have always kind of been in like sort of low church evangelicalism, mere Christianity, right? Um, but in order for that to have roots, which I desire like any human being that exists in community, like I have like studied classical Protestantism and the Reformation, those sorts of things as time has gone along to like sort of fill things out a little bit. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Cool. So yeah, yeah. well, yeah, one of the interesting things I didn't even know before starting this podcast was that David, you grew up Protestant and moved and became Catholic, and Nick grew up Catholic and became a Protestant. Yeah. So that's that's yeah. pretty interesting. So I guess I, that kind of leads us into our next question, um, and kind of the way that we can kick this podcast off. Uh, David, tell us exactly how you became a Catholic and what that yeah. transition was like. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a big story. It's uh, I, I studied when I did my doctorate uh, at Fordham University. I wrote on John Henry Newman, the nineteenth century English uh, cardinal who uh, who's now Saint John Henry Newman, as of about three years ago. Um, and he used to say that it's 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 pretty difficult to tell any you know serious conversion story between the uh, the fish the fish portion and the soup portion of the dinner. Uh, but nevertheless, you have to kind of give give a small account of it. Uh, yeah. For myself, like I said, I, I came from a very faithful family. I think uh, both of my parents who've passed on were serious Christians who had a very serious prayer life. And they taught me to uh, to take seriously the things of God and the scriptures and, and what God was saying to me. Um, as I came into my teen years, I, you know, there were a lot of, there were a lot of debates, particularly in the Protestant world and particularly in the Christian Reformed Church um, uh, about the nature of uh, the scriptural revelation, particularly around uh, a couple of topics. One of them, perhaps more more historical, namely, how do we interpret uh, the book of Genesis in terms of the questions of, of modern science and our understanding of evolution and the sort of the age of the earth. And the other one had to do with the question of, of ministry uh, as well. Uh, as Nick, you know, Nick pointed this out, and that was the question of, should women be allowed to be to be ministers or to fulfill that office of presbyter or, or bishop or, or deacon? We didn't have Bishops, of course, but I mean, they, you know, the, in the reform tradition, uh, the sort of the ruling, the ruling elders and the, the head pastor, you know, are kind of mm-hmm. serve a kind of bishop function. So for me, those questions were really alive. Uh, how do you make sense of this? Because you could quote scriptures on both sides and how do you organize it? Mm-hmm. Um, so the question of, well, how does, how do, how do we interpret scripture and how do we make sense when there's conflicting data about it and how do we make sense of the different genres of of literature that are in the bible mm-hmm. was a big question simultaneously i was i was reading as many people do uh in a c.s lewis and then being introduced to many of his friends such as J.R. tolkien and a great influence on him chesterton whom we talked about on that mm-hmm. earlier podcast um, and I was quite I was quite influenced by people like Lewis, who, even though he wasn't a Catholic, had very serious Catholic friends whom he thought were serious Christians. And 
beyond that, uh, Lewis embraced a lot of understandings that, you know, that I associated with, with things Catholic. He, uh, the intercession of saints uh, and, you know, sort of prayer to the saints, which we'll talk about a little bit later, the understanding of purgatory, um, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these issues, you know, Lewis appeared to be a kind of, you know, a Catholicish figure mm-hmm. about them. And so as I read more of these figures, I began to be influenced by, uh, by him and his friends and influences who had a kind of view of the world that, that we can describe as sacramental uh, insofar as, and, you know, this kind of gets into some questions that perhaps we can get into later, but uh, you know, how does God work in the world? Uh, Does he work through the things of this world, particularly material things, or is it purely a kind of spiritual, namely a sort of intellect to intellect level? Mm-hmm. Um, so reading through a lot of these things and then going to college and starting to think about questions political as well, I, be, uh, I began to start to put together some questions about, well, how is it that we come to a, a truth uh, in Christianity? Is it, is it just me and the Bible alone? It seemed that didn't, that didn't seem to be exactly how it worked. Um, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. True, but it was actually my mom and dad. It was a community who told me so. Um, so I began to think that uh, the big question was not sort of scripture versus tradition, but what tradition uh, should I should I take to understand scripture in the big picture? And then uh, and then connected to that is the question of authority. Is there a kind of an authority within the church to decide these questions? So. Uh, those three sort of elements, scripture, tradition, and authority, kind of came came together for me. And as I as I uh, as I kept thinking about it, it came down to me t- uh, to be essentially about two different options. Which was, uh, it seemed to me that the older traditions, either the Eastern Orthodox tradition or the Catholic tradition, was probably the bearer of of the the you know the greatest fullness of of understanding of scripture, um, and they agreed on quite a bit of 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 their their view, not entirely, but they largely agreed. And so, uh, I, I began to do a lot of reading and a lot of praying, visiting visiting different churches, and uh, and eventually, you know, through prayer, I, I I discerned that you know what God wanted me to do was to to become a Catholic, and that that this was. A completion of my Christianity, not a kind of rejection. My parents, you know, perceived it as a rejection, perhaps of them, but particularly of Christ. Uh, but for me, that was not the case. To me, it was a completion, and everything that was good about uh, about my Christian background uh, and my Christian friends and everything that they taught me. I saw uh, affirmed in the Catholic Church, not without not without difficulties. I mean, as Nick points out, you know, there are lots of bad priests, uh, priests who are sort of lukewarm or even sometimes heretical. And all of those problems were difficulties. But but nevertheless, I saw in in uh, in this what what Jesus wanted of me was to become Catholic. So so that's what I did. And then later I went on to study some theology and uh, and I've been teaching and writing and talking about these matters since. Well, can, yeah. I, ask, well, can okay. I ask two follow-up questions? Yeah, go ahead. The sure. first is, David, do you believe that you became a Christian 
when you converted into Roman oh. Catholicism, or do you believe that you became a Christian sometime before that? And secondly, in moving to Rome, why not move all the way to Constantinople? Why did you choose to become Roman Catholic rather than Eastern Orthodox of some kind? Okay. Yeah, good question. So uh, for the first, uh, no, as I said at the end, I didn't conceive of becoming Catholic as a complete break, but instead a completion. So I, yeah. I, uh, I came to consider that when I became a Christian was when I was baptized when I was a child. Now, I did have an experience when I was when I was young in which I kind of, you know, I was very fearful. And my mom said, well, you know, you should pray uh, that Jesus would become your Lord and Savior. But and that was a very important uh, moment for me. But I, I came to believe that it was actually that earlier moment when I was four, when I was baptized, uh, that that God put his own own life in me and, and all the rest of it has been response. Um, so I certainly don't think I became a Christian only when I became a Catholic. I, I, I like to say to people that, you know, that I, uh, you know, I, it was a kind of fulfillment. It was an, an adding on. Uh, the second question about why not, why not the, or I, I brought that up. Why not become Orthodox? Um, I'd have to say that the, the, the big thing that, that affected me, and I still love I I love uh, uh, Eastern Orthodox thinkers, and I, I have friends who are Eastern Orthodox, uh, whom I value very much, not only for not only for their friendship, but for their for their wisdom uh, as well. But the big question I had for for the Orthodox is, if you claim to be the Church, how is it that you function as a Church, a singular? Um, you know, and this is not to say that the Catholic Church, uh, you know, is a faultless monolithic thing that everything's running, because obviously there are, there are huge problems within the Catholic Church. But there is a discernible unity, uh, even if it's a chaotic mess at times, uh, whereas the Orthodox uh, seem to be divided along national lines um, in, in such a way that quite often you see you know, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church is separated from the Russian Orthodox Church, and there's an Orthodox Church of Ukraine, and there are different versions of the Greek Orthodox Church, and some of them are not in communion with each other. So I, I came to think that uh, there was something that was a little bit weak there. The Orthodox will say that there has not been an ecumenical council since probably the, about the 9th or 10th century, uh, maybe, maybe a little earlier. Um, the Catholic Church has has claimed to continue to hold uh, councils which uh, it considers binding up until the 20th century in, in Vatican II, and that was a very controversial council as well. But but uh, it seemed to happen. The Orthodox didn't seem to be able to operate as one in the same way that the, that the Catholics did. Uh, and to me, that was sort of a sign that that the Catholic Church continued continued the history that was begun uh, at you know at the beginning, even in Acts fifteen in the Council in Jerusalem, uh, in which the apostles and the elders all get together and they are able to make binding decisions. Yeah. yeah well, okay. One of my experiences, David, is when I have conversations like this with, with Catholics, especially if they've come from Protestant denominations, is that it, it a lot of it ends up coming down to the question of authority. Yeah. Relative to unity, like Jesus wants there to be one church. How could we have one church? Where is there one church? Who has that authority? And usually, it comes down to believing some set of arguments that are meant to establish papal authority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I would say that if if you had to ask me the big issue, it would be it would be that question of authority. But as I said earlier, I mean, it's it's 
you know, it's not just the Pope or something like that, but it is, it's that sort of broader uh, threefold strand of scriptural authority, which is supreme, but then how do you understand it? Uh, uh, Well, it's understood in light of it being part of a larger tradition, capital T, and there is uh, an element of that human authority that it nevertheless can speak on behalf of God in, in some limited way, and, and that happens in the church. But I, I would accept the characterization that you know ultimately that that all comes down to authority. I just want to make sure that you know it's a kind of but what makes it, authority. I, okay. But like I believe that those like those three things. I believe those three things, right? Like so, right. right? Classical Protestantism has always believed those three things. So what makes it particularly Catholic? Is mm-hmm. the structure of authority out of which the church is able to speak authoritatively in concert yeah. with the Bible mm-hmm. and tradition, correct? Which includes the Curia, the Magisterium. Yeah, yeah I mean, and you know, and, I mean, the Curia has holds authority, but only insofar as it serves the Bishop of Rome. It's not a kind of a freestanding authority. It's essentially the the authority structure in the Catholic Church. You know, at least at the official level, is of course the bishops, and then and then the bishop of Rome who exercises this special authority. Bishop of Rome being being the pope. So yeah. But to look at what you okay. said in the continuity of your own argument, David, you you said like one of the things that you were you saw in the in the CRC or the Reformed Church was that yeah. you had these questions like how do you deal with questions of science and the early chapters of primordial Genesis, or how do you deal with questions of gender in relationship to church offices and so on, and the questions like who does that thinking. And then yeah. from whom does that get digested and come out in church teaching such that we could believe it without all of us having to sort out reality for ourselves every single day on every yeah. question, right? Mm-hmm. And that is there yeah. a place that people can just talk and we just believe them, right? Mm-hmm. And that on some level, since most of us believe 90% or more of what we believe on the basis of the authority of someone else, wouldn't it be great if there was a place where we could just respect their authority and like not have to figure everything out for ourselves? Right. And so in that sense, the Curia as advising the Pope being like this, like oh, yeah. Roman brain trust, you know, of where like, you know, let's really sort this out and try to get this right. Yeah. Um, they're, they're very relevant relative to your questions of like, who does this thinking for us in a group of people mm-hmm. that are selected well for it and will produce something that we can hopefully rely on. Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good way of, of putting it. Yeah, they are there. But of course, you know, looking at the way history operates. Um, it's not just the curia who does it or even just the bishops who do it. But there's, uh, you know, what, what what I like about the Catholic tradition is I mean, hopefully they're going to read something you write, right? Like Catholic professors yeah. and theologians. And- yeah, no, right. I mean, you know, I could be part of that. Now, maybe, maybe you know, maybe I'm not participating at any high level, but but mm-hmm. there is that sense. I mean, you use that uh, that metaphor of sort of digestion, right? And that's, that's uh, I think that's a good one because that seems to be the way in which uh, the church has operated throughout history. There's a, there are kind of different understandings of uh, you know even from the very beginning uh, the nature the nature of the Lord Jesus right uh, how, you know what does he have one nature or two in what sense is he divine now you know looking back from 20th century well obviously he has both of, you know he has both of these but the language and the sort of the categories needed to be worked out uh, over a period of time because you look at some some of the very earliest christian writers and they will have a kind of sense that that well the son who became flesh was you know, was uh, was a little bit lower than than the father. So there's a kind of subordinationism. 
Uh, well, in what sense is he lower or something like that? And of course, mm-hmm. the answers come out as they're debated over the centuries that, well, he's not he's not any less God. Um, and but it takes it takes a lot of work, and even sort of what people that we consider heretics play play a role in this as well. Uh, very good, you know. Very mm-hmm. very smart heretics are actually very good for the church because they come out and they say, mm-hmm. "Well, let me tell you how to understand this," and then everybody else has to say, "Well, wait a minute, is that really what we understand?" Mm-hmm. So you know, you get one of the first big figures is this third uh, and fourth century figure Arius, who was a, a presbyter. A priest in Alexandria, Egypt, who understood the incarnation in kind of platonic terms. You know, Plato under didn't think that, uh, you know, the one, the center of reality, this God could really be in contact with us. And so there had to be a kind of a lower reality that served as a mediator. That's the way Arius took it is that that uh, the word was actually a kind of a lower form. He is a created reality. Hmm. Um, you know, and and he had lots of verses to back him up because because in the early church hmm. they often referred to Christ Himself as wisdom. And if you read Proverbs or some of the other literature, right, wisdom is is at the beginning of creation, but he's definitely a, a created reality. And so they said, hmm. well, how do we in, interpret this? Yeah, uh, David, I can. I, a lot of these figures who are participating, and, and the main figure in in three twenty five at the Council of Nicaea is actually a guy who was not a bishop yet, but a deacon, Athanasius, who was also an Egyptian Alexandrian. So, you know, all that is, is to sort of support your point that that we're all participating in it, uh, but ultimately, uh, right, it's the, the where the buck stops is with the bishops and the Bishop of Rome. So, yeah. In Catholicism. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I want to, I want to back up a little bit um, before we get too deep into any of these. I, I want to, so, so David, you talked about how you went from pro, uh, being a Protestant, growing up in a Protestant family to moving into Catholicism and, and all of the reasons for that. Nick, I know you broke down a little bit why you moved from Catholicism to Protestantism, mm-hmm. but I want to, you want to break that down a little bit more. And then after that, we'll start talking about the differences between the two and kind yeah. of breaking everything down more. But, but tell us more about your, your transformation from, from uh, Catholicism to Protestantism. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess maybe I'd break it down into maybe three parts. One is that I encountered a non-vibrant community of believers in the Roman Catholic church. And at first that was just all I experienced, but I also experienced it in the other churches I visited in that region of New York where I was from. The, the Roman Catholic Church is, wasn't just very – there wasn't a lot going spiritually in, the, in that particular part of northern New York near the St. Lawrence River where I came from. It's, yeah, it's a disaster there. <laughs> yeah, and so um, uh, so there was that. And so as I, as I went through life, that experience I had with Roman Catholicism didn't change. Um, what I tended to find was very vibrant Roman Catholics – um, had been converted to Roman Catholicism from Protestantism, mostly, and that um, the churches weren't very alive. There wasn't much going on. There was almost no evangelization. It didn't seem like the church was on mission in any meaningful sense. They weren't speaking the language towards secular people. Now, that's not totally true. Once you got into academic fields like law and um, politics and where, where like it, um, relevance wasn't the biggest question. The question was, could, can you think a train of thought over a couple of centuries? In any place where that was the case, Roman Catholics tended to be better. 
So when you got into like academics, people with PhDs, people like living in the life of the mind who are particularly drawn towards this like great tradition that the Roman Catholic Church is a big part of, there tended to be like a lot of vibrancy in those circles. But when it came to worshiping circles, actual priests, congregations that I interacted with, I did not find vibrancy at all. And those churches weren't reaching anyone that I could tell. And I wanted to be part of a church that was alive, that was reaching people for Jesus, that preached the gospel, that wanted to explicate the word, bring people to study the Bible, even if it was under like a, like a dictum of faith too. Um, And that just was like, I just did not experience that in my experience with Roman Catholicism anywhere I went in the country. Um, except for like little patches. When I got into homeschooling, um, I started coaching teams that were about half Catholic, half Catholic, half Protestant. And these are like Latin mass, like Taliban Catholics. I mean, these are like, like very, very serious Catholics. And there, there was a lot of vibrancy, right? What I, what I saw though, was that among them, they were utilizing a lot of sort of Protestant and even evangelical mechanisms by which to increase their personal spirituality and vibrancy while also using heightened um, like Catholic measures like the Latin mass. So like they were in favor of like praise and worship songs and taking their kids to Latin mass. That makes sense. And so as I interacted with them, I, I, I frankly found a lot of spiritual vibrancy among that particular sub community, but man, it was a small subset of the Roman Catholics. I, I was, what I was finding in the Protestant church, when Catholics became quote, Catholics became Protestants, it was nominal unbelieving Catholics who became Protestant in, in that they put their faith in Jesus. Jesus became their Lord and savior. When I interacted with evangelicals or Protestants who became Catholics, it was believing, Bible reading, Bible study, going to college educated evangelicals who were looking for a deeper rootedness and a unity where they were thinking more deeply. And the, the deeper traditions that were accessible more easily in Roman Catholicism were very attracted to them. And so they moved towards either Canterbury, which is Anglicanism, Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, or Constantinople, Eastern Orthodoxy. And so I was like, okay, that. I don't respect that. Like, I respect why people are doing it, but to see believing Christians go from evangelicalism to Roman Catholicism and unbelieving Catholics becoming Christians and coming into evangelicalism, I wanted to play on the side of what I considered evangelization rather than like encouraging people into a longer tradition, right? Theologically, I had theological disagreements with Rome, like the priesthood, um, I and at like I, Wait, so I, you, what's the disagreement you mentioned celibacy but I, I wanted to clarify yeah, so, that for listeners because right. it's not actually a doctrine that only celibates can become priests because in the east there's been a tradition of ordaining married men but in the right. west already married been, men that's been a, a, a kind of a rule for about a, a millennium now but right. that's there are also right. exceptions so I would that. argue a rule the church should never have made. It was settled at Nicaea yeah. against that rule, and then they came back to it and rechanged it. So there was an old one-eyed persecuted bishop from Egypt who stood up when they were moving in that direction at Nicaea and said, how dare you do this? He was single himself, but he said the apostles and many of the fathers had had wives, and you have no right to make the priesthood celibate. You shouldn't do it. And he carried the day at Nicaea, and then later it changed, and they should have never made that decision. That decision's wrong. And the church that has the authority to make good decisions should change it, right? Secondly, I think sometimes when people say you can have ordained married men as priests, what that means is if you're already married, then and then you try to enter the priesthood, an exception can be made for you. It does not mean that in my like in my situation, somebody who feels a calling early in life, who doesn't believe that I have the gift of singleness, was then excluded from the priesthood. 
That's just a fact. And I was yeah. told by, in no uncertain terms by the Catholic church, that was the case. So now I'm not saying like that my decision should come out of some kind of hurt. It's just like, well, where do you get this from? That led me back to yeah. scripture. Like, is this the case? And it's, it's yeah. not the case. So well, that's, I see, I mean, that's, so this is interesting. I mean, this is one of those, you know, when I brought up earlier for me, when it came down to the Catholic and the Orthodox, Catholic and Orthodox tradition, both interpret this the same way as that you can ordain a married man, but not, not a single man who is then going to be sort of on, on the prowl for a wife. Uh, and I, I think there's a great wisdom to that. And you do have actually in Paul's letters, the notion that, a uh, you know, presbyter should be the the husband of one wife. Now, some 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 Catholics will argue that that uh, itself is leaning towards celibacy. I won't go that far, but it certainly does seem to indicate that uh, that how you know ordaining men who have been married uh, at least uh, you know they should not be remarried. There, there's a kind of a, a sense of, of propriety about that. And I mean, I find that I find that, you know, quite, quite wise in many ways. And I, I think it's certainly defensible. But um, in terms of, you know, not not ordaining even married men, again, that's that's a kind of a. Uh, th- that's a practical judgment. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not a good one. Uh, but but it's a it's a practical thing and not a doctrinal one. So okay, so so Nick, do you have something to say to that, or do you do, should we? So um, let me stay on the question rather than the rebuttal. So the the question is just okay. like why did I why did I not stay with Rome? So oh, yeah. speak, right. So one is those practical considerations of what I experienced in the church, both in terms of like mm-hmm. me moving towards ministry and also seeing ministry being done. The second is I do have doctrinal disagreements. I think that the Church of Rome is wrong, and I think some of those views are just I would have to I would have to sin against reason and conscience to yeah. believe what they teach. And I also think that one of the things that happened to me is as I moved through this, um, I had a similar response to David relative to like, okay, evangelicalism seems like the wild West. Like what the frick, like who, like who's in charge here. Right. <laughs> and so you try to figure this out, right? So who's in charge here? And the answer, and the answer is, well, the argument is supposed to be in charge. We are confessing church, right? So the idea is there's like an apostolic confession that we're all connected to. We're like, okay. Well, is it just, what you can prove the Bible says. And well, in some denominations, that really is what they think. But in magisterial Protestantism, it's always been, no, we're part of this thing we might call the great tradition, which is there for us, right? And so we're integrating with tradition, but there is no figure like a papal figure who goes, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. You don't have that figure. So that final like gavel bearing person doesn't exist, but everything else exists. You have all these great teachers of the church. You have all these these people with their views, they give their arguments, they've preached their sermons. You've got 2000 years worth of this material. You've got all the councils, you've got the creeds, you've got all this stuff, right? And that then you you interact with that body of the great tradition so that it corrects and helps you so that as you move through scripture, tradition, reason, and experience, and you work that together in community, you pursue the truth as best you can, right? The reason why I think that has to be sufficient is because I just don't think that the record of the Roman of Roman leadership has been that great. I think that there are some like p- problems. I also think that because the teachings of the church aren't supposed to really change, they can be reinterpreted, they can be adjusted, but they can't be like out and out straight up changed. I think it keeps them from reforming certain things because they can't go, oh crap, we got that wrong in 1047. They, they, they can't really so, do that. Wait, so what, what, so, you know, you brought this up. So what would you say are like your top two or three 
doctrinal, not 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 uh, not disciplinary things like like clerical celibacy. But what 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 are the doctrines that you think uh, should be revised? Um, I well, I think one of the biggest problems why schism continues is the Roman Catholics insistence that they're the one true church and that for most of the history of medievalism from Constance forward until Vatican II, they were the church. There was no salvation outside of the church unless you maybe experienced um, invincible ignorance. And so the idea that like I'm not – like if we, if we believe the Roman Catholic Church through the vast majority of its history, I am not a Christian. I am going to hell. Full stop. Oh, I don't. I don't think that's exactly true. I mean, I mean, have you been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Right, but with I am water, not with water. Right, but I. Well, I well, mean, but my, that makes my understanding is that, that Constance was very clear that if I was not in union with the Roman Catholic Church, even if I was a martyr, I was going yeah. to hell. Yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 yeah, I understand that. That's a, that's a, that's a kind of, uh, that's a kind of tough one. But of course, there's been more than just constant speaking on this, and and you brought right, your, that, that gets you back to the question of papal authority, the question of invincible ignorance, though, right? It, what is invincible ignorance? That is, look, if you in conscience could not have known, now only God alone knows that. But at the very least, I mean, your baptism is recognized as valid. Um, and that means that you're, you know, as Chesterton put it, uh, and, you know, a, a Protestant Christian is simply a Catholic who's gone, gone, gone wrong at some point. Uh, but, but you're certainly acknowledged as, uh, you know, the, the term that's been used now for at least a hundred years is separated brethren, but it is certainly brethren because your baptism right. is. Right. Is, we're talking about a papacy that's existed for 2000. Like yeah. now in the modern era when non-pluralism has become almost unthinkable culturally, like it feels yeah. convenient that the church kind of came around to this. But what needed to happen yeah. like hundreds of years ago was the church needed to be like, you know what? We had a lot of corruption that was really screwed up. Yeah. Instead of punching you back with the Jesuits, we should have admitted we were wrong. and We could have been one church again. We didn't do that. But we're not well, going to go back and admit we were wrong. We're just going to yeah. kind of like say you're sundered brethren now in Vatican II or whatever. And I just like – Well, maybe like, – yeah, That just doesn't better. play with me. You know? Okay. Well, but I mean, but but it's the way. Look, it's it's a little more complicated than, than this because, if, you know, take even the split with the Eastern Orthodox, same sort of strong language. Uh, but I mean, even that split, we talk about that as being a, a sort of a tenth century thing, tenth and eleventh. But really, I mean, it was you know the the splits were not absolute, and even in the twentieth century, somebody like. Pope Pius X, who was, you know, the hard, hard, hardcore, you know, defender of, of papal rights and things like that, was telling people, is particularly in Orthodox places, that intercommunion could be allowed, and there were all sorts of things. So it's there's a little bit more more complication at work here in terms of the response to separated brethren. And it, it yeah, predates yeah, some people might call that inconsistency, though, right, David? I mean, like from my perspective, yeah. like when the church under the authority of Rome states that those who are not in communion with the Roman church are not in the Ark of Noah. They're just not in it. Like, yeah. I, I, listen, on some level, I'm grateful that now the church speaks yeah. that way. Like, I, that's great. The, but, the, but, but see, that just creates another problem because then what about the authority of the church and the Pope? They changed their mind. Either they have to change their mind or they, they yeah. don't. If they change, because like the way you're talking now, I'm like, David, you'd make a great Protestant. Like, like, cause, cause like, that's how I, like, I would love to, like, I would consider myself a Catholic if the Catholic church wanted to, I would just be like, look, I think the church has been wrong about a handful of things like papal infallibility, yeah. 
Yeah. I'm okay with a pontiff or a great father in Rome. I'm okay with monoepiscopates. Yeah. I'm okay with like, like, like urban, like I'm okay with yeah. church leadership and, and them telling us what we should think and councils and all that stuff. It's just like, I've got to be able to say like, okay, they just got it wrong a few times. They, okay. they blew 1525. They just blew it at 1525. They should have been like, stop writing those, those books as mean as you did Luther. And we will, we're going to clean this crap up and we're going to start with Rome. Yeah. Right. And they just didn't do it. And then like, and then as we've gone along, things have softened, but like in order to soften enough to accept Protestants, Catholics can't be Catholics. And this has been a problem for a few hundred years now because you got to well, change I mean, your mind about a bunch of things and you can't yeah. change your mind. Now, David, now I know okay. everything is always more complicated than that, especially with Rome because yeah, yeah, Rome yeah. is very complicated. What I'm yeah. saying is why one of the reasons I walked away from Rome was because of this sort of dynamic that like mm-hmm. I, I, I would have, I would have to give over certain kinds of authority in ways I just didn't feel like I could. Mm-hmm. Right. And, it, and it's not because I don't want leadership. Like I like having yeah. people in charge. I don't want to do all the thinking for myself. Like on some level, an Episcopal form of government yeah. seems great. The problem is, is that like, like, okay, so it take, I mean, just take government, for example, right. Ha- having a King and having a democracy are two very different forms of government. Well, which is better? Well, it depends on the population and it depends on the king, right? Like if the king is fantastic and he's the smartest guy in the entire world and he's virtuous, then probably monarchy is better. If you have a virtuous public, then maybe democracy is better, right? But like they both have their problems. And monarchicalism's problems is that if you have any corruption in the leadership, it is so hard to reform. And my issue is is that like in Protestantism, we are a freaking mess. But in my life, what I did is I picked a church. I turned that church around as best I could. And I, I can like, I, there, I can keep corruption out of my church. I can be always reforming and I can seek for that to be the best expression of the body of Christ. I know how to do, and nobody can stop me from doing that. Right now. I think mm-hmm. priests have a lot of ability to do that, but like, anyway, these are some of my reasons, right? Okay. I'll get started here. Uh, we'll, we'll kind of move back because we've already discussed throughout this podcast over the past, like 30 minutes, some of the things that, that some of the differences between Catholicism and Protestantism, obviously you guys both went in different directions in your life. Um, and so David, I wanted to ask you to kind of get into the meat of things. Uh, what do you think are some of the key differences between Catholicism and Protestantism? I mean, you, you guys have already brought some of them up. So, I mean, we don't need to yeah. bring all of them up, but, but what would you say are some of the key differences? And then I'll ask Nick um, if, if he agrees with these, and then we can kind of discuss some of these a, a little bit further. Yeah, I mean, I think one of them that's already been brought out is, of course, the question of sort of final authority on these questions. Um, to me, that also gets into an, a number of other places where I think the, the the Catholic understanding, again, it largely parallels the Orthodox as well, uh, uh, you know, have to do with the sort of putting things together. So there's a kind of a separation of the idea of faith from uh, the, the works of faith or the works of obedience. Uh, and there's a, there's a separation between kind of the physical and the, and the, the spiritual or internal. Um, and all of those play out. Um, you know, can, can, can matter be the opportunity for God to do something spiritual with you? Just, you know, so for instance, I said uh, when I was baptized, that's now that's when I consider that I became a Christian. Well, you know, a lot of a lot of Protestants would hear that and be like, that's superstitious. And, you know, it might sound superstitious to many people, but um, but I mean, curiously enough, it's actually something that emphasizes the role of grace because 
uh, it's the action of God through a medium, a physical medium, uh, that made me what I am, and not even particularly my my first response. It's 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 that. So I think it's a lot of those divisions between uh, physical and spiritual, between faith and works, between tradition and scripture. Mm-hmm. I think that actually form the sort of the the real the real uh, distinctions between mm-hmm. Catholics and Protestants generally speaking and again that's that's kind of a broad scope but that's part of, part of the problem with it even talking about this is that when we talk about Protestantism as, as Nick pointed out there's a lot of different kinds mm-hmm. of Protestantism and so you know if you talk you know if I talk to my Lutheran friends about baptism and its efficacy or uh, or the real presence of Christ in in uh, the Eucharist in the communion elements, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, you know, they're going to be probably more on my side than if I talk with some of my friends who are much more in a different vein. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, there's going to be differences. If I talk to my, my Pentecostal and charismatic Protestant friends about, uh, about how God can work miracles than with some of my Calvinist friends for whom, uh, you know, miracles were for the apostolic age. And after that, God doesn't need to do that. Um, so, the, you know, there's, you know, obviously this is one of, one of the difficulties uh, in talking about these things. But I'd say, you know, in general, the differences boil down to these sorts of breaking mm-hmm. apart uh, pairs in terms of mm-hmm. faith and works, scripture and tradition, right. uh, you know, physical and spiritual, that, that sort of thing. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the interesting things, and one of the things I, I think we can try to break down is, is this difference between the uh, tradition and and scripture, and I guess what and kind of authority and and what has ultimate authority at the end of the day. Um, and you know, one of the things that I think happens, I mean, Catholicism seems to put an emphasis on uh, church tradition, while Protestants generally try to emphasize scripture and personal conviction. Uh, over tradition, I guess for for you, David, where do you draw the line in your obedience to Christ? Uh, should Catholics follow follow their own scripture um, based tra- uh, convictions when pit against Catholic doctrine, or should they trust in their Catholic tradition? I, I'm sure I know the answer to this, but, I, but yeah. can you break that down a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I I, I I guess like I said, for me, part of the question was how do you how do you interpret scripture and what is the context for that. And for me, the Catholic tradition provided that bigger, that bigger tradition, right? That bigger handing on of the sure. deposit of faith within Scripture, within which Scripture is the sort of the privileged, the privileged moment and the privileged time when not just popes, but you know, even somebody like Paul, who was not the Bishop of Rome, could speak infallibly and indeed write infallibly mm-hmm. uh, certain things. Uh, so for me, you know, uh, obeying the tradition is 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 uh, is exactly right and and of course within that there're going to be lots of lots of distinctions um, how you understand precisely the nature of uh, you know nature and grace how they work together mm-hmm. that sort of thing there're going to be lots of there there're going to be lots of questions that are not solved over time i mean it takes it takes centuries for a lot of even the basic questions to get hammered out. Um, you know, like I, I brought up, you know, the development of the understanding of Christ. Um, you get at 325, the Council of Nicaea, that's where we get this term consubstantial and the first the first iteration of what became known as the Nicene Creed. And it talks about how, uh, you know, uh, the, the word shared the same ousios or being or stuff as the Father. 
uh, consubstantial with the father. And then, mm-hmm. you know, it took a long time then because the, the first edition of the uh, Nicene Creed, when they got to talking about the Holy Spirit, they were so tired from all the fights uh, you know, of course, being a Christmas season, we must mention the the legend that that Arius was punched out by none other than St. Nicholas. Um, but, uh, you know, the first edition of that was and we believe in the Holy Spirit. And then they didn't say anything about that. And so it would take till, you know, uh, 381 and then in 430, uh, these various councils for uh, a sort of a developed teaching on the Holy Spirit. Um, so to me, you know, it, th- there's always going to be open questions and each new iteration of teaching on a subject is going to lead is going to lead to new questions about how to fit all this stuff together. So I have not found, uh, you know, that obedience to the church or to tradition is is a weakness, but instead it's a, it's a sort of opportunity because it sets out the basic boundaries within which you can argue then about about these topics. Uh, sometimes I think Catholic apologists, you know, make it a little too neat and easy, like, well, once you accept this, then you don't have any more questions. You just kind of know what to believe and then you go for it. And of course, mm-hmm. you know, there's a certain truth to that, but uh, really there's, uh, you know, it, it's not as if life stops and you never have to mm-hmm. think again. Uh, but instead, now you have the, as you know, as Newman said in his Apologia, his sort of spiritual memoir uh, written in the 1860s, that he thought that the Catholic Church provided the greatest opportunity uh, for basically, uh, you know, private judgment and authority to work together. And so that's that's mm-hmm. what I've found. So I don't I don't find it a difficulty. But mm-hmm. well, OK, so so Nick, you I mean, a Catholic might argue that that Protestants, especially evangelicals, follow their personal interpretations of scriptures to a fault. And obviously you guys have talked about this a little bit, um, but w- what's your I guess what's your response to, to to what David just said, and what's your take on this whole tradition versus personal conviction or or, or scripture or you know personal conviction of what scripture says? Um, authoritative conversation. Okay, so I I'm willing to skip what I think are the differences between Protestantism and Catholicism, or we could come back mm-hmm. to that later. I have a a list myself of those, mm-hmm. but let's we could jump into interpretation. So, mm-hmm. um, my, here's my issue. So you might say like. First of all, when we talk about people like reading the Bible, interpreting it for themselves, what is Jesus saying to me? I think it's probably better to use the word evangelical than um, Protestant there because mm-hmm. Protestantism has a lot of different – like he, like um, Dave was talking about, like when I talk to my Lutheran friend, you know, they're a lot closer to me in certain things than like maybe a, like this other person over here. So like they're – the way I would distinguish it is magisterial reformers or, or Protestants versus revivalist. Protestants. Um, Protestant denominations that come out of the revivalist structure in America, that is people rode around on horses and preached the gospel at like camp meetings and stuff. The churches that were formed out of that tended to be less educated, more anti-intellectual in their nature and status. They tended to be out in the countries and they tended to like, they didn't have like, like for example, when Wesley came to America, he asked the Anglican bishop to ordain bishops to send to America. And he said that the bishops that that bishop chose knew no more of saving souls than of catching whales. And that when he got to America, when people got to America, when Methodist got here, the bishops wouldn't go West. They stayed in the East coast cities that were well-established and they wouldn't go West to preach the gospel and to give people communion, for example. And so that's one of the reasons why Wesley broke away from the Anglican church and became sort of a high Protestantism in a way, but also a revivalist evangelical. The Methodists are like the 
the fusing of these two traditions. And that's why they joke that like, what is a Methodist, a Baptist who can read, right? Like that, that's mm. kind of the joke as people moved West. So I would say that in that revivalist tradition is a form of evangelicalism, uh, which is just sort of like, what is the spirit telling me? I'm reading my Bible, interpreting it for myself. Our church doesn't have to be connected to any other churches. We're part of the body of Christ, but we could just be this local church. That's different than like Protestantisms that are like Anglicanism and Lutheranism and those in yeah. like higher level yeah. Presbyterians, right? So like when David was talking about tradition and stuff like that, like, I mean, I'm an educated Protestant. So I have an MDiv. I have more than 120 hours of graduate studies in theology. I learned both original languages, right? So like I'm not your average like Baptist, like mid-Missouri like dude, right? So my expression of Protestantism is different. So when I look at this, I say – all that tradition that David spoke about belongs to me too. Like I don't, I don't accept that that belongs to one group of people and not another. Like I don't believe Gregory. You can't Nazis, I'm just yeah, I mean, I got like it'd be like the Orthodox <laughs> Church saying that that the yeah. that the Catholics couldn't read Gregory of Nazianzus or Basil. You know, like it just mm-hmm. these people just belong. They belong to the Church of anybody who belongs to the Church, and in some ways, they belong to the world. Like they're, they, they, these are writings that exist in the world. Like Martyr Justin Martyr wrote to the to the Roman Emperor. Like that, that treatise was for the church, but it was for him, that pagan emperor to change his mind about killing Christians. Right. So in some ways the writing is for the world too. So, so then the question is, okay, well then what's the difference? And, mm-hmm. and one of the differences is not just logically how we think about it, but practically how we think about it. So for example, in the Roman Catholic church, scripture is the highest authority mediated through the understanding of the fathers and the teachers of the church in tradition, and then explicated through the Roman, like the, mag- the magisterium, and most expressly verified and clarified when necessary by the Pope. Okay. That's great. I'm all for that. That sounds fantastic. The problem is, is that in practice, I would argue it's the opposite. That in practice, right, what happens is the Pope is telling us what to believe. Now, He's going to argue it's from the magisterium through the tradition, understood with reason, like all things are ordered to reason, right? In Roman Catholic theology and, right, this is the right interpretation of the scriptures. Okay. But like in practice, it's the opposite. So like when I go, when I go to a question, I go, okay, what does scripture say? What does the great tradition say? What does reason dictate? How does this accord with experience? How do we work this together? How do I think about this with other people who I believe have the spirit of Christ, Right preferably other ethnicities, other continents, other time periods when possible, right? And try to come up with, like, figure out what to believe. And so I can do all that stuff as a Protestant, but what that might, but then when I say, well, what does the, what does the Pope said? What does the magisterium said? I'm not bound by that other than to be bound by truth and reason. Mm-hmm. If they're just right, then they're right. And I'm obligated morally to agree with them. Mm-hmm. Right. But as a non-Catholic, I don't, I don't concede to them automatically. Does that make sense? Do you- do you, but do you, let me ask you a question. I mean, th- that sounds great, but like, let's say I'm somebody in your church who's not very educated, maybe mm-hmm. not, you know, not great at this stuff. I mean, a lot of them are just going to look to you and Correct. say, well, what's Pastor Nick say? Um, are, are they, uh, are they not living up to their Christian, their Christian duties? Or, or is it the case that, you know, for, for most people, um, you know, going and looking through all this stuff and trying to make up your mind about complicated decisions, that's just a little bit unrealistic. We have families to work with, you know, maybe our job mm-hmm. doesn't allow us to do this. I mean, are, is is there, I mean, I, I don't have a problem with people who just say, look, I accept what the church teaches. Now, yeah. per, 
perhaps, you know, if you're smart, you do have a certain duty to sort of understand this stuff and be, be able to talk about it. Everybody has a certain duty at that, right. To contend for the faith, you know, and, yeah. and to give it, give a reason for the hope that lies within you. Uh, but at, at a certain level, uh, you know, I just think it's fine for people who believe to take, you know, to, you know, they want a source to a, a final answer. And it seems to me that you're either going to get that, you, you might be able to do it yourself, but for most people, they're just going to choose an authority. So, you know, then it cuts down to, well, which authority? And that, you know, mm-hmm. that's part of the question is, I mean, you know, you talk about the magisterial reformation, but again, Lutherans and Calvinists don't quite agree on these topics. And then they don't really agree with the Anabaptist tradition. I mean, you know, historians talk about mm-hmm. there being at least four reformations if you talk about just the Protestant side of things. So, mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I, mean, David, I, I guess why the authority question goes to it. Yeah, let me let me pack something in your cannon to shoot back yeah, at me. Um, so I would say I would say it this way: as a believer, I feel caught between a evangelicalism that is arguably chaotic and a Roman magisterium that is arguably sclerotic. <laughs> and as I as I tried to choose which of those would would be the best to submit myself to, believing there's believers in both, I chose mm. the one that was more chaotic. As, mm-hmm. Over the one that I believe is sclerotic, because I believe that the chaotic one could find leadership, could get ordered, and I could be Nick, part of a subdivision Nick, of it. T- tell tell me what what does sclerotic mean? I don't know what that means. It means like hardened in a position, really a, really hard to stay flexible and to gotcha. change in the ways okay. that you need to change. Gotcha. gotcha. Your, your old relatives will talk about hardening of the arteries, you know, arterial okay. sclerosis. Sclerosis, right? Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, so gotcha. It's all clotted and can't. Yeah. The blood can't flow. It's not. You're going to die right. soon. Right. And yeah. on one level, like whenever you have an institution, the larger it is, the harder it is to change things. Like people like church leadership, sure. they always talk about like, you know, you can turn a jet ski a lot faster than you can turn an oil tanker. But that's not what I mean when I say sclerotic. Right. I'm not saying, well, the, the Catholic church can't change just because it's big. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that in areas of faith and doctrine where I think change should take place, the layers of tradition hold the Catholic church in certain positions. Not a, not a ton of positions. But some rather important ones that I think need to be fixed. I just don't think they can be fixed. So one of those, I think one of them is uh, is papal authority. I think that's one. I think that's a really important one. I I do think that that ends up being related to apostolic succession, which ends up being related to the ontological nature of the ordination of the priesthood, which leads to the validity of sacraments. Like those are all kind of like connected. In a way that's very like I was talking to a Catholic recently, and I was like, okay, he's like, we were talking about transubstantiation for like an hour, and I was like, well, I mean, like, like you can talk about transubstantiation, but I'm telling you, philosophically, I see no difference in what you are saying and what I believe. Like, if you want to use Aristotle's categories mediated through Aquinas about what is or isn't happening in a piece of bread when God works through its nature. Right. And I don't want to use Aristotle's categories through Aquinas, but I believe that God is present with and in the bread. But the bread, we both agree that bread isn't meat, literally, but we believe that the presence of the body of Christ is in and with the bread somehow in a spiritual way of grace. I I just cannot discern the difference between the two. And his response was maybe there isn't. The difference is the validity of the sacrament. You can't create a valid sacrament because you're not in apostolic succession. And I'm like, there it is. Yeah. Right. No, so I mean, in, in that sense, it's not even the do- it's not even the doctrine of the Eucharist that like formally separates me from the Catholic Church. It's them telling me I can't give the body of Christ to the people of God. Right. And like 
that's where I, that's where I struggle. And it, that's connected to apostolic succession, right? Because like, yeah. you know what I mean? Cause like, and then there's the yeah. whole issue of like, do the Anglicans have apostolic succession and therefore then do the Methodists have apostolic succession? And like, what is that? So these are like, I think these are significant and I just don't see how the Catholic church can change these. If in fact it even wanted to, because well, yeah. they're so committed and because the Pope is infallible. Well, but okay. And you've identified a problem in, you know, basically the, you know, how, how and when the Pope is infallible uh, is, you know, is a yes, question. Is narrow. Is a narrow. It's, it's a I very understand. narrow thing. Uh, you know, so, I mean, you know, a lot of people hear the Pope is infallible and they're like, you know, okay, give me a number between one and 10 and he's always going to get it or something like that. Right. Or, you know, uh, you know, should you shop at Geico or is it, it that's not what it means. But I mean, right. the, this was only decided actually 140 years ago at the first Vatican Council in 1869 and 1870. And it was extraordinarily narrow grounds in which the Pope can speak um, on his own and without an ecumenical council um, on on uh, on faith and morals and his teaching can be irreformable. Um, but, you, but, but you're right that this is a big question because there are a lot of people and it kind of, you know, kind of depends upon who the Pope is. They want to sort of attribute a layer of infallibility. So if you're kind of a progressive Catholic, whatever Pope Francis has said on the airplane recently, mm-hmm. you know, they want to make, make that infallible. It's, right. it's, it's kind of and that's silly. not what it means. That's I, not I, what it, I totally agree right, with that, but yeah, but you're right that it's, you're right that it is tricky, but I don't see the problem. See, I mean, you know, you talk about these layers of tradition to me, the layers of tradition are what make it possible to rethink these things. Um, you know, so for instance, when I was talking about, you know, well, are these people Christians in some sense? I, I think the sacramental theology and the layers of that are what allowed the church to kind of rethink at least an attitude. Um, toward toward non-Catholic Christians because they take very seriously um, the sacramental theology that we propose that if something is you know if is done in proper order and if somebody is baptized in the name of the Father Son and Holy Spirit with water that's you know that's touching their head then by that by that action God has put His presence in that person now then the question is. Uh, well, what are we to make of this person? And, you know, you, you cited a number of these, uh, you know, these teachings about the fact that, well, you know, maybe they were baptized validly, but, you know, they don't have any fruits of the spirit. And one of the things that happened over the last couple hundred years is, uh, you know, sort of thinking through this. Well, they are baptized validly. Is this action, you know, from the spirit? Are these are these people who are not in communion being led by the spirit? And the answer is yes. There was an older, Augustine tended to talk about this as if, well, if you're baptized in a, in a bad group, like the Donatists, a sort of separatist group in North Africa, mm-hmm. then really those sacraments, they won't bear any fruit. And it'll be kind of like, you know, you talk about sclerotic, you know, it'll be like, you know, it'll be like a blood clot that prevents God from working in your life. Well, the reality is that's not not necessarily the way it worked, and that there have been these, uh, you know, many heroic figures who ha- have served Christ uh, by their very lives. Were they were they right about every topic? No, but then that that's where that that concept of invincible ignorance comes in. Like, well, as long as you're not conscientiously rejecting the truth. God is not going to hold you accountable for that which you could not know. 
Um, and so there, there, yeah, there the did develop a different attitude toward, you know, toward these groups. And like I said, it was not, it's not completely out of the blue because there was always, you know, towards, towards many of these groups, there was a sort of a friendliness and a desire to bring them back into the fold, particularly the Orthodox and then the Anglicans, but also certain Lutherans. It depended on where you were. And so to me, those layers of tradition and all that, you know, that multiple layer layering is what allows you to then go, go back and think, well, is there, you know, are, are we, are we completely taking this, uh, you know, the measure of all of scripture and all of God's truth or not? And then you can kind of rethink the practical questions about, you know, uh, ecumenical action or, uh, you know, or, priestly ordination or, or what, you know, whatnot, whether we should, uh, whether we should ordain married men or not. And I think, I think that's, that's, that's really helpful. So. Okay. Let me kick the kickball back at your face here on this one, because I feel like you're making my argument. I feel like that's my argument. My argument is because I'm a Protestant, because I'm not subject to the fundamental conclusions of the magisterium Mm -hmm. and the Pope, I can do that. I can take a view and I can go back and look at all of tradition and all that stuff again and I can change my mind. But if sure. there are but if there are like magisterial and papal teachings of the church that are authoritative that say people like me are going to hell. Like I like so so like for example, I'm sympathetic to the idea in the development of doctrine that the Roman Catholic Church could say the invincible ignorance does not separate one from Christ and therefore there could be people among Muslims or tribal peoples or Jews, let's say, mm-hmm. that could be saved like mm-hmm. because they didn't really get super specific about that historically right the people they did get super historic specific about historically are people like me yeah people they wanted to be as clear as you could possibly be that people like me were going to hell because i couldn't appeal to invisible ignorance right? right so you can come up with that idea later and and great maybe there are muslims that are that have invincible ignorance that are saved i'm i'm open to it like a, a little bit like more open view of inclusivism, whatever, maybe that's true. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but my issue is, is like, it doesn't change it for your average, I, I guess, Protestant, like be, no. unless I, as far as I can tell the church changes its mind. And I think that it wouldn't be enough to say, well, the church has sufficiently in a complicated way developed its doctrine on this a little bit more. And now Protestants are no longer going straight to hell. There might be some other options. Like I think on that one, they'd have to say, we we changed. Them. You can go to New York City. It's all the same to me. Got to got to quote the prophet yeah. Hank Williams occasionally. Yeah. So like I, so in one ways, like I think the development of doctrine is something I'm very sympathetic to. It's something that definitely happened historically. It's an empirical fact relative to how mm-hmm. like you you like when you're talking about like the deity of Christ and the councils and stuff. That's abs- that's all true. However, there is a difference, I think, between development or working something out further and truly fundamentally changing one's mind about something. Yeah. And I think we have to be honest when we're doing one or the other. Reverse itself. But if you can understand things in a broader context, and I think the context of invincible ignorance uh, does do that. Now, you know, this is the problem, right? Is some people are like, oh, well, that just means all the Protestants are going to heaven, you know, like, well, no. You can't, you cannot reject what God asks of you, uh, you know, and, and pretend that you don't know. Well, I, I couldn't see it. I couldn't hear it. That's obviously not possible. 
Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I think it's, it's perfectly rational to say, yeah, you are in danger of going to hell if you, if you are rejecting the truth that's in front of you. Uh, but I'm not going to say that I know what's in your, your heart and mind any more than I know what's in anybody else's heart and mind, or even, even my own for that matter. As St. Paul says, I do mm-hmm. not even judge myself. Um, so, I mean, I think it's perfectly, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to keep an agnosticism about who's going, to, who's going to hell ultimately. But I think we can certainly say, you know, just as you would say to somebody who says, well, I'm not quite sure about Christ, like say, saying, well, look, Okay, is this a question of you don't understand it or you just don't want to accept the consequences? Because Mm -hmm. I think, you know, you as an evangelist would say to somebody like, look, here's the deal. You seem to be on the right track. You just don't want to do it. Is is that because you don't understand or is it because you want to keep your mistress or is it because Mm -hmm. you want to keep your lifestyle? Why, why is this? I mean, I, I, I ask the same thing of Christians who are who who seem to accept everything that Catholics accept, but then say, but I don't want to do it. Like, well, you know, it, but if, if God wants the church to be one and you kind of understand that and you understand that to be true, that, that it's in the Catholic church that you find that unity, then you, you can't accept that. I, I don't find anything incoherent or, or unbelievable about that. It's just simply a basic question of, of whether people are truly invincibly ignorant, they they can't figure it out, or they can't get there, or whether or whether they don't want to go there. So, I don't know if that does that. I mean, is that is that fair? I mean, uh, um. So so like I said, I, like I ha- I don't have any problem with the idea that the church develops doctrine. I don't have any problem with that. Yeah. I I just I think that I think that there is a sclerosis to the a priori commitment that certain offices in the church are going to be right. And yeah. I think, and I, I think that, I mean, I, and I would have thought that the history of corruption in the papacy would have cured the church of this by now, but it just hasn't. And well, it, even, even okay. the disjunction between the last Pope and the present one, like I love yeah. Ratzinger and I do not like this one personally. Right, right, and right. like, <laughs> just like you can have just like people who are so different and it's just like, well, you know, um, yeah. I just like I have I have a real problem with just like like when I look at the history of the papacy and the history of the development of doctrine and how it handled certain things, especially since the Reformation. I just I'm like part of it is like when you're on the outside and you and you're not you're not like well that's my pope so I'm gonna stand with him. But you're like looking at a office and you're like is this the kind of office that I think the Lord Jesus meant for me to submit myself to? I just don't see evidence any evidence in Jesus or the apostles. Like I don't see the seed that could even be made into the oak tree. That is this thing. And what, but when I do read the Bible itself and I read about Christ and his apostles, I find the claim that I'm to put my faith in Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and connect myself to his believing church as outlined in the Bible itself, very compelling. Okay. Yeah. And unavoidable. Right. And so there are certain doctrines that I believe, if I don't believe them, the Bible itself says I'm anathema. I have an issue with 2000 years of development in which. A, a certain subset of the church says, if I don't believe in what they think about their own authority. So these are people arguing from a particular office of authority, mm-hmm. like, which, which makes it a little unobjective, possibly, right? Saying that if I don't submit to their view of their authority and the position they're already in, that I'm going to hell. And especially when it was at an era of the height of corruption within that church at large. Like, I just, I just yeah. really struggle with that, David. And, yeah. and so like, a couple of uh, probably six weeks ago, I was sitting with our local 
Catholic bishop having lunch with him. Where do you talking? live? You're in, you're in Madison. Yeah, I live in Madison. Yeah. What's uh, what's the the name of the guy there? I forget. Blonde guy. Um, no, it's uh, it's, bishop, it's high. It's Heineck or height. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, anyway, keep going. I can't leave his last name right now. Next yeah, guy, yeah. he's a, he's more of a churchman than a philosopher, right? Yeah. Which good good bishops are probably in a lot of ways. But yeah. anyway, I was talking about like I, you know, I would love. I mean, I would love to see a true ecumenism. I would love to see one church globally. I would love that. Yeah. And I don't. For me, there's not a lot of doctrines that would have, except for like we're gonna have to get to saints here at some point and Mary. But like, there's not a lot of doctrines that I feel like I can't accept. Like I. Yeah. I'm just not like what I where I was at with some of them some years ago. Like there's some nuance. Sure. I think that there's some guardrails that need to get put up on some of these Catholic doctrines. But like just generally speaking, as they're taught, it's fine. I, I'm okay with it, right? Yeah. But like, and he's and he was like, I would love that. That would be so great. What do you think would have to happen for that to happen? And I was like, and I'm like thinking, well, your church would have to not anathematize all of us. Like, like your church would have to be like, okay, yeah. we're the true church in the sense that. We are the best expression of what Jesus and his apostles wanted, and we are the most in the apostolic succession, and we're like the big brother. You should probably listen to us, but you guys are expressions of the church and the body of Christ. Now, let's get this thing together, right? And like, I'm not of the position that like, until all of you Catholics get together and you all show up at John Huss's tomb and John Wycliffe's tomb and you lay on the ground and you cry and you say, you know, like, you'll stop beating us like a wife, like... Then maybe we could talk. Like, I, like five hundred years has gone by. I, yeah. I can't do. Like, I, I want the church to be one. But like, there's gonna have like, there's gonna have to be some. And I think that I think that the current position of papal infallibility and in papal authority is just like it's a bit too much. Like, yeah. I don't. The Pope doesn't have to be like, look, I'm never right. I think if the church just backtracked on papal infallibility. I think there's like, look, the Pope is the head. He's the one we defer to. We should listen to him. Like, this is our church's teaching. This is what you should believe. In. I mean, listen, you have like extraordinary reason not to, and your soul is in danger if you don't listen to the teaching of the church. Like, I think you could say all of that and like be in a pretty good position. But then like, once you take that next step, and then like, if there's this relationship of falsifiability where somebody could be like, look, you said the Pope was like this, and I think he was wrong on that thing. Now I'm not going to listen to his but silly butt. Then you yeah. got a whole nother big problem. And that's the kind of where I'm coming from because I think there's some things that the church is wrong about. And if the church is like, look, we're trying to get everything right. We're working really hard. We'll, we'll try to correct stuff as it comes up. I can, I can get down with that. It's just the like, we're right, you're wrong. We're the true church. Like that's like, it's not just like I find it, I find it combative. It's not that. It's not like I don't like being anathematized. I mean, I don't love that, but <laughs> I got over that when I left the church, right? But like, it's the like continued insistence that like, there I'm right. You're wrong. And I'm like, okay, yeah. well then you're not going to look at your stuff. Like this is, this relationship isn't going to work because you're never going to look at your stuff because you start with, you're right. And I'm wrong. It's, it's me, that kind of like division. Let me just throw something out. I mean, I, look, I, I understand that that's difficult, but to me, that's actually part of the evidence that the Catholic church is the inheritor of the new Testament church because they weren't afraid to say, you have to follow this. I mean, you know, you have you say you say there's not the seed that become the that could become the oak tree, but you know, even in the Gospels, you have our Lord speaking of the Pharisees and talking about them. Uh, for instance, in Matthew 22, he talks. He says, "Well, you know, don't do what they do, but listen to them for what they say, because they sit in Moses' seat, mm -hmm. right?" Which in, in 
it seems to indicate a kind of judgment and doctrinal judgment sort of facility. And then when you get to, to, to Acts, like you say, Acts 15, you get the decision that's made, and it's it seemed good to the Holy to the Holy Spirit and to us to say Bing Bada Boom, you know, no strangled meat, uh, you know, no sexual immorality, and keep to this. So mm-hmm. to me, that you know, the seeds are right there, even in the New Testament, um, that they they feel okay about saying, yeah, you have to follow this, and that you you know, even in the in the uh, the Catholic epistles. Later on, you have that phrase, anathema, right? Uh, you know, for you know, this is forbidden. You're out. Uh, so to me, that's not a problem. But uh, that's in fact evidence for the Catholic Church's claim. Now, you do bring up a difficulty in so far as uh, you know, you have to sort out what is itself infallible. And like I say, for the papal stuff, I, I tend to, I tend to, you know, take a, a dim view of those who try to make everything infallible. And I look to those those guardrails of Vatican I. Now, you have identified a big problem, though, and this is something that I think is going to have to be dealt with, in, you know, maybe at the next ecumenical council, at which probably neither you nor I will be alive. But, you know, it's, it's the papal authority, which is much more difficult, I think. Uh, people think that infallibility, which was declared in, at Vatican I is the problem. I think it's the immediate and universal jurisdiction, which seems to seems to indicate that the Pope can kind of micromanage every aspect of the church at, at every moment. And I think that's that's where I think a lot of the theological questions come come into it, because then what does that make of, you know, the authority of bishops and priests? I think there has to be a sort of a greater um, putting this stuff together with other aspects of the tradition. So I, I agree yeah. with that. So but, David, isn't, isn't okay. it true though, that the idea or the doctrine of papal infallibility is declared to be infallible? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, see, this is where I'm like, Ugh. like how yeah. do you fix that? Like, well, you know but don't you accept, I mean, but you know, when Paul writes his letters, he's writing infallibly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when he when he tells when he tells these different congregations to do whatever I whatever I've commanded you by word or letter, mm-hmm. he's you know he's command you know he's he will even distinguish. He'll be like, okay, on this thing, right? The mar- you know it's always a marriage question, right? Mm-hmm. On this question, it's it's I Paul who speak and not the Lord. But then on others, he'll speak as if he is speak you know his thus says the word of the Lord mm-hmm. is is accurate to me that. That that that's that's inculcated in any understanding of what the church is, is that she can finally make decisions that there are people who can sort of who are serving that role of making final decisions. Generally speaking, it's in a council, just as it was in Acts 15. But sometimes it's an individual who can kind of command that. Um, In the case of the popes, not by inspiration, but by a kind of a guardrail that whatever he says when he declares this officially is not going to be wrong. It may not be the the full thing because we're constantly understanding this, but, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I mean, to me, that's, that's, that's a helpful notion and it's not, it doesn't go against anything because like I say, you still, you know, every time you define a doctrine, then you, then you ask another question, right? Like, well, mm-hmm. what does this mean then? If you said, you know, if the church says this, then what does this mean? If it says that he has two human natures to wait, to, when you're talking about a full human nature, does mm-hmm. that mean he has a, his own will? 
Like, how does that work to a, a divine will and a human will? Yeah. You know, I mean, so you're always going to be asking these questions after every definition. And that's just part of it is that uh, until the end of the world, we're going to be probing probing that deposit of faith. And it's the Holy Spirit who's going to keep as, you know, as Jesus says to the disciples in John, that he's giving them, you know, an advocate who's going to remind them of everything that he said. In other words, bringing out those untapped aspects of his own words. So to me, that's, that's, that's hopeful. Um, but it does sound, it does sound frightening. I, I, I don't, don't get me wrong. I, uh, it sounds like you're offering a blank check, but I think once you see the guardrails around that, um, it's, it's, you know, it, there, I, I don't have as much worry about that. I do have worry that bad popes can, you know, whether they're yep. speaking, trying to speak infallibly or not can cause oh, a lot yeah. of Oh yeah. Uh, like there's, there's no, Japan, there's no guarantee uh, that we're not going to get a Pope here pretty soon that might not be as right. Careful. You know, that's, those that are the questions that, you know, if you're into the sort of the Catholic circles like I am, they're kind of going back to St. Robert Bellarmine in the, you know, the 16th century, who's talking about, well, what happens if you have a, have a Pope who's privately heretical or tries to say something publicly heretical and how does that work? And, you know, those, mm -hmm. those are big questions, but, uh, you know, to me, again, infallibility of the Pope and authority of the Pope fits into the greater question of the authority of the church. And like I say, I trust, I, you know, I trust the church. That doesn't mean that every single thing a Pope or a Bishop says is going to be right. But, but I want to stay, I want to stay in the church that, uh, that Christ, Christ set up. And I want, I want her to be reformed in, in every good way possible so that the fullness of the truth is always manifest to everybody. Uh, and like I said, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm grateful for Protestant brothers and sisters who do such great, uh, great works. I, you know, just to plug a book, um, Peter Kreeft wrote a book, uh, uh, a few years ago in which he talked about this. He says, you know, Catholics in some sense, claim the whole house, right? It's the house of God. Um, and, and that includes the fireplace, but it's a sadness that too often it's Protestants who are the ones who are tending the fire much better than Catholics do. Uh, so for that, you know, I'm grateful, but, you know, but I do, you know, I do want them to come into the church and be tending the fire within the very heart of the church so that more people would, uh, would have that sort of uh, on fireness that you talk about. Yeah. Um, Look, David, let me so, say something in relationship to that because I want people yeah. to understand the view I'm coming from, but then maybe Andy can take control back again. Um, yeah, we so haven't I let think, him talk, have we? Right. Yeah. So, so I think some people <laughs> might think that if the Roman Catholic church thinks that they're the true church, whether that yeah. means everybody else is going to hell or not, but that they're the yeah. true church and it's best for all to conform to them. At least that what is the Protestant view is the Protestant view that the Catholics are all going to hell and so on. And the answer is it depends on which Protestants uh, Yeah, <laughs> in the Puritan Congregationalist and then revivalist tradition. It was commonly believed that the Roman church was the antichrist spoken about in revelation and yeah. was the greatest power on earth, leading people away from Christ. And, um, and, and honestly, at, in certain, some portions of the 15 and 1600s, I'm not sure I would have disagreed with that. However, most of the magisterial reformers like Luther and Calvin believed that there were many Christians in the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church was a valid church, that its leadership was valid, that its, um, its priests were ordained rightly and all of that. Th their problem with the Roman Catholic Church was that it, they believed it was corrupt. 
Mm-hmm. Not that it was completely wrong about everything. And the things they thought it was wrong about, they said what they thought it was that was wrong with it and that it should change its views, not that it just wasn't a valid church. And so I think it's important to recognize that there's a huge stream within Protestantism that believes that the Roman Catholic Church is part of the great tradition. There are many Christians in the Catholic Church. There are many valid um, shepherds of the people of God within the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and that Protestants just tended to believe that Salvation and damnation are not hung on understanding the seed as oak as much as people in the more magisterial churches. So I just yeah. don't believe you have to believe anything ontologically about communion or the Eucharist to believe that you're to partake in the body and blood of Christ and to proclaim his death until he comes out of faith in him. And that that is that is the gospel you must believe. I don't think you have to believe anything about the accidents or the like the metaphysical nature of what's happening with the bread for any of that to happen. It's fine for the church to try to work out what they think is happening, but that that is constraining upon us to believe what the gospel God has given us to believe. I just don't think it's true. Right. And so because right. of that, a lot of presidents believe in what they call the multi-stream church, that the church is wherever the gospel is believed and that the word is preached. The sacraments are, are expressed in that case, meaning at least the two that Protestants affirm in a similar way and where church discipline is exhibited, wherever that happens in Orthodox churches in in like, like Egyptian Catholic churches and Roman Catholic churches and Protestant churches of various kinds, where that happens, a church exists. It is part of the wider body of Christ where it does not in all of those traditions, a church does not exist. Right. And that there, are, as I believe it was Augustine said, there's, there like, there's many wolves within and many lambs without in any of our traditions. And so my belief is not that like, well, no, Protestantism is right. And David is going to hell. My view is that God will judge his own. We should have as, as good an expression of the church as we can possibly build it together. That does include the development of theology, right? So I'm not mm-hmm. saying that if you get beyond Galatians 2, you're going to hell. So I do believe there's some development that happens over the course of the church. But I believe that the church is multi-streamed. I believe that there are valid churches under the vicar of Christ, which are both Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox, and otherwise. And that Jesus mm-hmm. has to sort that out for himself in the work of his spirit globally. And he desires all of us to be one. And so it's our job to work as best we can to become one church. And if I think at some point that means I should be Catholic, I'll become Catholic. Um, I, that seems unlikely. That's all we can ask, right? It seems I mean, unlikely at this point, but yeah. – um, and yeah. I think that David should become Protestant. But, you know, we, I, I, I think it's very – I don't know what Jesus is going to say. You guys were totally wrong about this thing. Like, mm-hmm. and you got it wrong in 1247 and you just they weren't able to correct it. Um, or for us, like, I have no idea how Jesus is going to judge the church. That's why our – the Protestant sort of like call to arms is always reforming. Yeah. And it, and that is a fundamentally liberal chant, right? We have to ch- keep changing things. And the Roman Catholic church is like, I don't think they'd say never reforming, but it's kind of like careful about reforming, very, very careful about reforming. Yeah. And it is a fundamentally conservative view, right? That we, we build on tradition. There's so much wisdom built in tradition. We don't understand in new generations. We need to be really careful. And sometimes conservatives are wrong. They don't change when they should. And sometimes liberals are wrong. They change when they shouldn't have. And I don't believe I'm infallible. I can at least say that about my own like <laughs> fatherhood as a pastor in the church. Does that make sense? It's, uh, yeah, it's the old joke about you know orthodoxy is my doxy. Heterodoxy is somebody else's doxy, right? Um, yeah, no, let me, let, me, let me just put this to you that uh, – I don't think that the church is purely conservative. The Catholic church is purely conservative. And in fact, when we talk about reform movements, um, reform movements have always been running through the Catholic church. Uh, The very first one I would say is the monastic movement, which was particularly 
when their empire became sort of open to Christianity and then, a, you know, uh, and then it became the official religion of the Roman Empire along with Coca-Cola. Right. Uh, you got a lot of nominalism and decadence. Right. right. And, 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 you know, that. That, and then it's like, OK, now what? Movements came into conflict. Uh, you know, with with uh, the bishops and and popes, uh, same thing happens in the Middle Ages from the 12th through the 16th centuries. There's a whole lot of reform movements. The question is, what what is the primary need for reform? Is it is it these teachings that have been settled by these councils, or is it the reform of the structures and the persons within? And I'd say. Catholics acknowledge that there need to be development of, of teachings, uh, not reversals of things that are formally defined, but primarily the reform needs to happen at the level of persons and, of course, structures as well, which is why you yeah. get new kinds of religious orders springing up, you know, after 1000. And, you know, I mean, you know, you, you yeah. said some naughty okay. things about the David, Jesuits. L- l- David, let German. me tell you like one quick story and see if you would take this yeah. a different way than I would. Sure. So before I was what I am now, which is I pastor a non-denominational Protestant church, I was the United Methodist for about seven years. Okay. I yeah. was under bishops and the whole bit, right? Right. And what I noticed in the Methodist church was that it was controlled by the liberal wing of the church. Yeah. Mostly the finances, but also all, but all the areas of authority and structure. So you had all these like Bible believing, gospel believing, great tradition believing Methodist pastors in churches, but in the seminaries, in the bishoprics, in the district superintendency, it was overloaded with theological liberals who were never going to change. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I saw 15 years ago, it wasn't going to change. Now I was part of the confessing movement in the United Methodist Church and I was trying to push for reform. It was yeah. not happening. Okay, and I could see the writing on the wall because you could not reform the bishopric and the district superintendents when they had was that far gone. And so I got out. Now, yeah. 12 years later, the Methodist Church is splitting because it was irreformable. Because once you have a sclerotic bishopric, it is really hard, right? So you see where I'm going with this? Like part of the issue is is that I think that there are some difficulties in reform with certain perverse incentives that exist in certain kinds of administrative structures. When if you get problems in the bishopric, like power plays and all these, you know, like pet doctrines and it's really hard reform. Yeah. We saw this in the sexual scandals in the Northeast in the, in the Roman Catholic church. Now, of course we also saw this with the Southern Baptists recently, yeah. not taking responsibility in a different way. Right. Mm. But like, this is my, this is my frustration with like, when I look to like the Roman system and I go like, yeah, like I, I, I love the structure. I love the clarity, but at the same time, I feel like that kind of structure, once you get problems with the people, and this is one of the areas where I struggle with the, even the doctrine of ordination, because yeah. one of my fundamental beliefs as essentially a pietist is you cannot separate the validity of pastoral leadership from the reality of that person's faith. And I understand the whole like, well, what if the priest is bad and the people can't access God? That's why I am loose on my sacramentalism. I would rather give up a certain intensity of my belief in sacramentalism than believe that you can have an ex opera apparato priest who does, who's not even a Christian who is having affairs with women in the church and his, his sacraments are still valid, but there's no vital life of Christ in that person. And that's mm-hmm. why I believe the vitality of the pastorate and therefore the superintendency and the bishopric has to be the most fundamental thing, which is exactly what on the priesthood is about. Why, why they went and got Chrysostom out of the desert because yeah. they couldn't find a non-decadent priest in Constantinople, which was one of the biggest cities of the empire. Right. It's so hard to reform. And that's that's one of my personal struggles about looking at the Roman Catholic Church and saying, oh, this could be so much yeah. better is, oh, man, I, can you really turn around this, the, the sclerotic nature well, yeah. where it exists? So let in me that ask you, though, Nick. I mean, as, as you point out, many of the problems, though, are, are, are going to be 
problems, no matter what institutional structure you have. Correct. I totally agree with that. And the problem is, you know, you're going to leave the Catholic Church, but then you have to leave the Methodist Church. Yes. I mean, and as you point out, John Chrysostom lived in an age in which, you know, people think it looks bad now. It looked really bad in the the fourth century as well. I mean, uh, you know, you probably heard this phrase, uh, you know, people cite this. uh, It's one of these quotations. Um, You know, the road to hell is paved with the skulls of bishops uh, uh, and uh, with uh, the signposts being, yeah, yeah, erring priests or something like that. I tried to find this. I could not find this. But what I did find was that in one of his uh, commentaries on the book of Hebrews, St. John Chrysostom says, yeah, I think probably at least 50% of the bishops are going to hell. Well, what does that what does that say? I mean, I think mm-hmm. it says something. You know, a lot of people would say, "Well, then we have to get rid of all institutional structures." Yeah. But as and humans, I would not say that. But yes, yeah, some people do say that. that. Yes, yeah, I know. But I'm, this is my point: is that yeah, that's the uh, fundamentalist it, fallacy that, like, if yeah. the institutions aren't going the way you you want, you sell them off to the people who now control them, and you create all your own institutions all over Correct. again. And that's yeah. a really difficult path to go to because yeah. now, like, like, if you look at just the seminaries in America, like almost all the seminaries in America that started in the 1700s have all gone, I would oh, yeah. argue, non-believing. Right and we yeah. just keep creating new seminaries every hundred years, and it's like it's a problem. Like, That's and you right. can see this with conservatism and liberalism within universities. Like, you've got people just starting completely new universities, yeah. so you can have any like. Yeah, any conservative yeah. faculty at all, you know. Yeah. So no, what do you I, do I about agree. that? How do you fix that problem within institutions? I mean, this is—it's not just a Catholic problem. Yeah. It's it's a Protestant problem. It's obviously a human being problem. It's a go- governmental structures. You need, you always need a, a profound renewal movement and reform yeah. movement within whatever movement it is that yeah. is strong enough charismatically that the people will follow them. But what's right. the balance? Because that seems to be. I mean, you could argue that maybe you can't argue this. I, I don't know my history well enough, but there's got to there has to have been institution church institutions throughout the past that had a healthy amount of of reformed, I don't know, vigor in them that ended up uh, imploding. I mean, I I don't know yeah. if I can think of any sort of in- ch- church institution that hasn't. Yeah become super corrupt throughout human there's history. no institutional system that 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 can be held together without the virtue of the people participating in it like, right. I, mean, I, I mean i think the, the united states constitution is a great example of that i mean i think it's one of the yeah, yeah, yeah. most yeah. one of the best conceived documents yeah. but right. when people just start saying well that doesn't mean that and it means this other thing i want yeah. it to believe and they just change it like that and everybody just goes along with it then anything can mean anything and you don't even have a document anymore right so right, right. I mean, yeah, so I don't think that the, I don't think the Roman Catholic system, like as like an Episcopal system, like as a system that uses bishops and that you have bishops of bishops until you have one pontiff. I don't think that that's like inherently bad. Like that's not the, the church government I would get from reading the New Testament. I think a more congregational elder led system, which we have, is better. But I'm not like a, you still end up with this question like, well, how do you answer bigger questions? Who's doing the thinking for the group? Does every pastor have to do all the thinking for themselves? So like that's that's where like. Protestants have have like created seminaries where our scholars try to do that together, but then you have no ecclesiastical group like pe- like actual pastor that affirms or disaffirms what those academics are doing. Right? It's really hard to do that. So, like on yeah. some level, I want some kind of magisterium mercuria for evangelicalism. So, like I'm not fundamentally against it. Does that make sense? But like, I, there is yeah. no system. I mean, Jesus made the well, system, yeah. and we still corrupted it. Like whether you, no matter which system you looked at, every system any church has tried has been, has proven corruptible. 
Let me let me let me agree with you. I mean, this is the thing is that, you know, and I think some people do get hung up on the Catholic system in terms of sort of the, the you know, the, the small aspects of ecclesiastical machinery. Um, you know, but I'm I'm pretty open to that in part because Catholic teaching is that the the you know basically the three elements that are sort of there in terms of the life of the church are bishop, priest, and deacon. Now, how those have functioned throughout history have has been has been different in different places. And from the beginning, there were there were bishops who were sort of not as you know, they would become disattached or were ordained as sort of like bishops of the world. And they mm. sort of fulfilled that perhaps, uh, you know, what, at least in one form of New Testament ecclesiology is sort of the role of evangelist. Mm. Um, so, I, you know, I don't I don't think the system as a whole is what what I'm holding to. But I, I believe that the church as a communion, the Catholic Church as a communion is constantly dying and being reborn. Um, you know, one of the best, one of the best uh, uh, passages in Newman's development is toward the end when he gives one of his notes of of true development of the church is that it's it has the sign of life, and he talks about the fact that the church, the Catholic Church, has gone through these ages when when it's been pretty much dead, and then gets up and rises again. Uh, and, you know, to basically to new life. Um, the way Chesterton put it is that the church, like her Lord, knows knows her way out of the grave. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I see right now in, you know, in the Catholic Church, I mean, particularly in the U.S., you look at the statistics, um, it's in a, it's in a virtual state of collapse. And yet there is a lot of life, nevertheless, that is going to survive it. And, I, you know, I mean, it'd be very easy to say, well, most of you know most of the church has these sort of lukewarm to heretical to whatever you know priests and that sort of thing but to me i think that whole that whole stuff is all going to die um and and there's going to be reborn uh, you know a new a new life um and what i pray for is that you know that christ's prayer in in his great high priestly prayer and in john's gospel is that we would all become one and that all of those gifts that you know, so many Protestants and uh, and you know, and Orthodox, that all of those things would come together and we would be one church. But I I I don't believe that the Catholic Church, despite the fact of its outward decadence and and uh, being dead, is ne- necessarily the sign that it's going to go because she's constantly dying and constantly, you know, ever since Chrysostom and before that, you know, you have the wolves and you have all of these bishops who are terrible. And yet the true life is, uh, is always being brought forward, as you say, by people who take seriously what, what, uh, you know, what Christ wants of them. Um, you know, Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, as he uses for his papal and rap star name, uh, has this great essay about new religious movements. And he talks about the fact that, uh, you know, that monastic movement was originally not conceived of as, well, we've got this cool form of life for ourselves. But instead, it was a movement of people who said, we want to live the gospel with no ifs, ands, or buts. And one of the first monastic rules, that of St. Basil the Great, was basically called the Enchiridion of the Committed Christian. So basically, like, you know, the guidebook for the committed Christian. 
Um, you know, so it's to me, it's it's a crisis of, of saints, of people who take seriously, uh, you know, the truth. But I, I do think that that Christ wanted us to stick together in his church. And it's only in the in the in the Catholic Church that you're going to see this constant renewal. Um, but, you know, again, that's just testimony. I'm not, you know. OK, I was with you until the it's only in the Catholic Church. We see this constant renewal. I think yeah. that there I think that it is true within the Catholic Church that there is that kind of renewal stuff that's dead is going to die and rot and then stuff that's alive. And when I say alive there, I'm, I would be referring mainly to orthodoxy and piety in union with each other. And Mm -hmm. I think where we find orthodoxy and piety in union with each other, the Holy spirit does work. And I, and I, I tend to think it is in the multi streams. I, Cause I see that in evangelicalism, you? you get churches, they fall apart, they come apart, they die, they yep. go away. But we're like evangelicalism. We're not like a banyan tree. We're like banana trees. Like we get torn apart and we just keep sprouting up everywhere. And we, we yeah. live kind of in that like short cycle, which is why we tend to have theological amnesia. Right. right? Um, and I also see it with, with Catholicism, almost like, like a maple tree that gets like half of it broken off with a lightning storm, but the other half lives and like the canopy starts to move over to cover the place where the other part of the tree fell. I can see that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Andy, I think if you're going to get us on saints, you better do it before we're yeah. out of time. Yeah. yeah. I, w- I wanted to, to, to move us into that. Um, I feel like this podcast, I've just, I feel like I'm listening to a podcast. I'm not in a podcast cause you guys are just, which is great. Cause this has been Sorry. really interesting to listen. No, it's not bad. We I, both I, have a lot of words. Yeah. Well, it's been inc- incredibly interesting. Um, a preacher and a professor. This is like, you know, <laughs> an invitation to, you know, right. Be, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I guess one of the main things that people obviously – a lot of Protestants talk about as far as what turns them off to Catholicism is that Catholics pray to the saints. Uh, they pray to Mary um, as intercessors between them and God. And most evangelical Protestants believe that, that Christ is the intercessor between man and God, and therefore we should only pray to Jesus. Uh, David, explain the Catholic theology behind why you pray to Mary and the apostles. And then Nick, yeah. tell you know – I guess you guys just yeah, yeah, talk yeah. off of that. Go ahead. So, uh, so first of all, a clarification of the word "pray" um, mm-hmm. is that it's you know it it has that connotation of speech that is designated for God alone. But in earlier English, of course, it's it you know often referred to any kind of petitionary sort of speech. Um, so Catholics believe that we can ask the saints for their interse- their session, um, and it. You know, the, I mean, and I went through this because, uh, you know, when I was when I was starting to think about these questions, it was like, well, but does this interfere with Christ's mediatorship? So for it's a lot of people would quote, you know, the lines from First Timothy two, uh, verse five about, you know, Christ's one one mediatorship. There are several passages in the New Testament about this. And the, the interesting thing about that is that even those passages are wrapped around places where, you know, the verses immediately preceding that in First Timothy are all about, uh, you know, the fact that we have a duty to intercede for others. So if Christ's mediatorship, his, you know, sole mediatorship means that nobody else can pray for us, logically speaking, we shouldn't be asking other people to pray for us, but we do. Uh, and in fact, it's a kind of a duty because as Christians, as little Christ, that's one of our jobs is to do what Christ does and to intercede for him. And there's not a problem with that. Should we go directly to Christ? Absolutely. But as created as a body, we're meant to rely upon each other. So then the question is, what about those who've gone before us? Are they separated from us or not? And I, I, 
I don't think that uh, that we should necessarily assume that those in heaven are completely separated from us, that they share in uh, they share in our life in a new way. And I mean, even in John's, uh, you know, the seer John, whether he's John who wrote the gospel or not, some scholars will disagree. I don't care. It's it's part of scripture. Uh, but, you know, you get in there this vision of what's going on in heaven. And, you know, for instance, in, in Revelation 5, we get this image of the 24 elders, which is marvelous, right? Because it's the 12, the 12 sons of Jacob, old Israel, and the 12 apostles, the new Israel. They are the foundation stone for the heavenly kingdom. Well, what are they doing? They're basically like... Uh, you know, they're there with the angels and they're pouring out incense, which are the prayers of the people on earth, um, to all together, the prayers of those in heaven and the prayers on earth. And I think that that image is not just sort of, uh, you know, a vision of something future, but I think it's a vision of what happens now. I mean, as, as Paul says, when I'm away from the body, I'm at home with the Lord. And what is the Lord doing? He is constantly interceding for us. And so if they're with the Lord, they're doing that intercession too. Um, so that's really what we're doing when we're asking asking for the favors of those in heaven is saying that you who are with Christ in a more full way than, than we are, uh, intercede for us. And you have... Uh, you have that great advantage, as you know, as James's letters has it, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Uh, well, who's more righteous than those who have finished the journey and been been brought uh, into the presence of Christ? Um, you know, is this a, somehow a separate power? Some people say, well, yeah, but that makes them like a separate power. So we don't pray to Jesus, we pray to somebody else. But of course, they only have that capacity to intercede for us because they are in Christ and they have been knit fully into his life, uh, having passed from this life. So it can be kind of frightening. I remember the first time I, I, I prayed to Mary, I asked her for, and I was kind of like, you know, you're, you're kind of looking around going, is this okay? And like, you know, I, I remember saying, Lord, I think I, I can talk to, you know, I think I can talk to her and these people, but you know, if I'm, if if I'm not, like, strike me dead. And uh, so then I began that. And I, I find that it's uh, it's wonderful to have those brothers and sisters who are elders and who've been perfected. Uh, and I I don't think it's, it's separated me from Christ, but instead it's brought me closer because each Christian who is, is faithful reflects a different a different aspect of the of the one light who is Christ Himself. So that's that's my my brief brief spiel on that. Yeah, Nick, do you have anything to say about that? I don't. I don't. I don't um, pray to Mary at all. Um, yeah. So I. So this gets back to the divide in Protestantism in its attitude towards Roman Catholics, right? So in that like lower church um, revivalist and post-Puritan. So the, the Puritans were early revivalists. They were oftentimes very educated. And so sure. um, th that congregationalism in the Northeast that saw the Church of Rome as the Antichrist, um, partly because of its relationship with Anglicanism and all the stuff related to that in the history of England um, was just pretty ugly. And both Anglicanism and Catholicism treated the Puritans like they were – like they weren't Christians and took their land and kicked them out of their country and so on. So they tended to think that these were not uncorrupted folks, right? So they tend to think that this is just straight idolatry. Okay. Um, you might as well be praying to Baal as Mary, right? Um, and then there's other folks that would say, there's just no warrant for this, 
right? Um, and I would be, in, I would put myself in that second camp. There's probably a way to pray to saints that is idolatry. That is, I think if a Roman Catholic found themselves praying to different saints for all kinds of different things and just didn't ever really pray to Jesus, I think that that would be like something like a kind of idolatry that is not utilizing the mediatorship of Christ, but truly believing you needed mediators to to get to the mediator. I think whenever we have mediators for the mediator, that's probably not what the mediator intended, right? If someone's job is the mediating, to go get a mediator, to help with the mediating for the mediator probably isn't the intention of the mediator, right? Now, that doesn't mean, I think, you can prove from that that praying to saints is wrong. But I'm just saying, I just don't see, one, I just don't see it as necessary. Jesus is my great high priest. There's nothing blocking me from him. He's going to decide whether to answer my prayer or not. Right? It's fine. Okay, so, so then the question is, well, do you have your friends pray for you? Like, I've heard that shtick before, right? Yeah. Um, and shtick, I just mean it Yiddish. I don't mean it like as a bad I, word. Like, it's stupid I, or anything. I, I'm I not know. sensitive. So let me put this in context. I, when I was at a conference, I went to an Orthodox service that they were doing the Mass of the Adoration of the Theotokos, or the Mother of God that is Mary. And the way we were doing the services, there was an icon of Mary holding Jesus and you passed the prayer book and everybody read from the mass, right? Because there were only like six of us. It was a conference, right? And um, there were probably five sentences in that mass I couldn't read. Yeah, this is probably an Akathistos service, one of the prayer services, I'm guessing. Right, right. Yeah, so not, like not, there's, a, not Eucharistic liturgy, right? Right, right. But there was no Eucharist in it, yeah. right? So yeah, so like, so like there was all yeah. this stuff said about Mary. And all of it was like within the realm of what like I thought would have been biblically acceptable. Like, you know, Mary is the Theotokos. She's the mother of God. Like she brings us Christ. Christ comes through her. Like she, like she's a big deal because Jesus is a big deal. Right. And she is a great saint. Totally fine. There were a few sentences that were like asking her to pray for us or like appealing to her. And I just didn't read those. You know, I was just like, well, I, don't, I can't do that one. Right. So like there's like I just preached four sermons on like how great Mary is. But I, I, I do hold to this Protestant view that like we are we are not called to nor authorized to pray to saints for their interdiction for us. Um, and I, I just we are told to pray for other living to have other living Christians pray for us and for us to pray for them. Mm-hmm. Um I don't think that the reference in Hebrews to us being surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses is sufficient to sh- demonstrate that they can even hear us when we pray, that like they can like – that we like we are in radio contact with them, that they have the same omnicompetence mentally that God has or that the Christ has. Like I believe that Jesus the Christ in his high priesthood in heaven has the like mental omnicompetence relative to the entire globe and all the billions of people here to take in – a billion prayers at a time. I think he's mentally competent to do that. I have no reason to believe Mary can hear them, nor would she be mentally competent to hear and process the prayers of hundreds of thousands or even millions of people all coming to her at one time, especially if like all faithful Catholics are praying the rosary together at one time. You know what I mean? So like they're, they're like these, and, and also I've read hundreds of pages of the church fathers, especially the anti-Nicene fathers, the ones that come before Nicaea in the first four centuries. I just don't find like any reference to praying or venerating saints in those kinds of ways in any of those writings from anyone. And so partly for those reasons, I, I just think this is an innovation. And I think it takes the proper hero worship of the saints too far to believe that they have ontological abilities to hear and intercede for us that they don't have. Now, if you could prove to me. Your heaven's too small, Nick. If you could prove to me that they could hear <laughs> us and I could find anything in scripture that encouraged me to do it, I might be game. 
I would pick a very obscure saint, though, that not thousands and thousands and thousands of people were praying to. Listen, I have no problem believing that my prayers to Jesus go into a bowl that Stephen pours out before God. And Stephen yeah. is the bowl pourer outer. And that in some ways, my prayers are going through St. Stephen. I'll, I'll, totally fine. That's fine with me. But I'm nowhere even – I'm told by the Apostle John or anyone like that that I should be praying to Stephen, right? Yeah. So – so do I think it's inherently idolatrous? I no, I don't not in a formal sense. I just don't see interdiction to its practice. I think the saints serve us best when we see ourselves in continuity with them historically and they are our heroes personally and they're part of the fabric of the nature of the church through time diachronically, right? I, like, and that's why I think like a lot of Anglicans and stuff, people who don't pray to saints will have st- all kinds of statuary and iconography. Like I'm for iconography and statuary. I wish we had more iconography. I wish we had, I wish we even had statuary inside High Point Church, but I would not encourage anybody to direct prayers through them. That's where I would be like that. We're moving from hero to intercessor. And I don't see warrant for that. Can I, 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 I want to ask a question and maybe you guys both have different answers on this. Maybe not. Uh, do you see prayer as a, a form of worship? Is it a form of, of worship? Because if so, I guess my question would then be, how can it not inherently be the worship of other gods? I mean, this is where I get caught up personally. I'm obviously not a Catholic, um, and I haven't gave, given my opinions on most of these things. But I guess my this is where I kind of get caught up personally. It's like, okay, if I'm wrong about prayer being a form of worship— uh, then, then fine. But I've always felt as though there's there's a authoritative structure that's in prayer, and I'm mm-hmm. praying to the to my authority, which is Christ, and and you know I'm having that conversation right. with him, and and and, and okay. he's answering in, in okay. ways that are perfect. Andy, let me defend Catholics mind. on this because I think it might sound more credible to our Protestant listeners. Um, okay. Both the word worship and the word pray have what scholars or linguists will call a semantical range. That is, you use the same right. word for a range of meanings, right? Yeah. In Protestant critique of praying to saints, right? We'll narrow the meaning of worship. Worship is always adoration of that which we believe is divine. And then we'll apply it to praying to saints and saying it's worship, right? But like even in the old Protestant wedding ceremonies, the the wife and husband would say, with my body, I thee worship, right? Hmm. Meaning in marital sex, right? Which is in fact what you are supposed to do. And although like God is often mentioned in that act by its participants, like the the worship is is co-human. Right. And that's kind of the purpose of it. Right. It's supposed to be bonding and cherishing. Right. Mm -hmm. Similarly, like worship, therefore, is the celebration of the worth of another. Sure. Right. Now, to the extent to which it is the activity of God, then directing that thanks to God is helpful. But I could say like I could say like, David, I want to celebrate the grace of God in you in pursuing theological things in piety and true worship of God. And I thank God for it. So I can give a worshipful affirmation towards David. And then when I turn it towards divine activity and grace, I then should and am responsible to turn that towards God. Does that make sense? So when I appeal appeal to divine grace or to God himself, it should be directed towards God. But I can worship or celebrate the worth of something in another. And then prayer is is imprecatory. Like it is is speech that is like imploring to another, right? And it it can even be, in in some sense, worship. But if you give a semantical range of both prayer and worship, you could have prayer – that celebrates the worth of a saint because saints are very worthwhile, but that isn't divine worship. And that is, it's not idolatry, right? However, however, the Protestant critique is yes, but the average lay person may struggle with such fine 
such refinements of theology. And, sure, and that's, sure. I, I always get yeah. after scholars, like people in David's position, is this is the problem when you have a tradition that is so profoundly nuanced, is what happens to the teaching of that when it gets yeah. down to the laity? They yeah. cannot operate at that level of complexity. And so I have met Roman Catholics in the laity who are praying to Mary in a way I would say is not okay and probably idolatrous. I'm, yeah. I, I've met tons of Catholics that never pray to Jesus. They pray to this saint or that saint because they just feel more comfortable doing it because the saints are more like me and Jesus is like this big, right? And David, well, of course, would say that's wrong. That's wrong. <laughs> if he sat down with those Catholics, he would try to correct them. So this gets – if it, this is a problem with Catholicism, it might be a theological problem. I think it is from a functional perspective, but I think it, I think if this is begging for a problem in the laity. That's why I would teach against it. I would say let's get rid of this. Let's not say yeah. the Hail Mary because it's I think it's begging for a functional problem in the laity that aren't capable of the education and nuance necessary to, quote, get it right. Because when I get so, together with my homeschool Catholics, they all get this. Like when I attack them, I'm like, why are you praying to me? They're like, they, they, their answer is correct. And I'm like, okay, if that's how you're doing it, I'm not afraid for you, right? But yeah. man, the, not, the nominal Catholics or the non-educated Catholics, even if they have a lot of piety – Oh. Can I, can I, let me, let me, David, you can definitely answer that. I, I just want to ask you real, real quick too, David, that, uh, is, is am I correct? Uh, okay. So is there an authoritative relationship between do the Catholics believe that there's an authoritative relationship between you and the saints or that you guys are kind of on the same level as far as like, if I think about myself, like I'm obviously, I am a saint scripture biblically, like the Bible calls me a saint. Sure. Um, and, and, and yet like, there does feel obviously historically you want to have reverence and respect for all those who came before you. But do I think that they're like better than me or better Christians than me? I have Absolutely. no idea. Absolutely. You, you think no, that I mean, I, that's the whole you, point is that um, they, if they are in heaven, they have been fully sanctified. Okay. They are, they are, are they better, are better than I am. They yeah. are, yeah. but were they in heaven is now? It? They're better than you. Yes. Okay. If okay. Okay. Heaven, yes, yes, yes. They are better than me now. You're probably better than I am. I mean, that's, you know, but that's <laughs> okay, so, way above all Let me us. Let me rephrase. Yeah. Okay. So they are better than me right now, but Absolutely. were they better? So, so, so who, I don't know, whatever example yeah. saint you want to give, yeah. were Andy, they better I, I than I would say yes to that. I would say even I mean, when they I, were here, they were better than probably the three you of can, us. I know yeah. that we would all want to say that because we all want to be humble. I mean, I'm not whatever, sure about like, 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 like the academic ones, like Cardinal John Henry Newman. Like maybe he was a better Christian than me. I don't know. But like- but like, you know, some of the great, like St. Francis, I'm like, he's Absolutely. probably better than me. You know, like, it's like some of the saints that were saints yeah. out of piety. I Nick, suspect I'm, I'm not, I'm not, are you, like, I, I think that that's the, that's the correct way to look at it in, in I, humility. I think the question you're asking and, is, is, is it, therefore, does God listen to them more? I think that's the question well, you're yeah, getting but, at. But even yeah. the question that like, are they technically better? Like, we, like we can look at them in humility and say, yes, I look up to them and I respect them. And they probably were better. But like, how does God view this? You know, as far as like time and space. And let's say when I'm dead and I go to heaven or if I do like, you know, am I am I on the same level as them or not? Or how does that work? Because I just feel like that becomes a whole confusing kind of cluster but of, why but why i mean you know like i quoted james james 5 verse 16 yeah. earlier you know the prayer of a righteous man availeth much and we see this all through the old testament and the new testament that those who those who are more advanced in holiness you go to them to have them pray for you 
And okay. the, the whole point of the Saints is that they are not just better than us sort of on a general level. It's not like me going to, uh, you know, going to Abraham or something like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But these are people who have now been purified and, and completely made uh, made whole. They have, you know, Augustine's mm-hmm. image of sin is that, you know, we're in curvatus and say we're bent over in on ourselves. Mm-hmm. They've been completely straightened up so that they can look up in the face of God. Sure. And they've been completely united with Christ. They've been knit into him completely. So I I have no problem with God listening to other people's prayers more than mine uh, because they they their prayers are more formed uh, by their relationship with God. So they know how to pray best. We know that even from our friends here, like some people just know how to pray for us. Like we're like, I don't know, everything's screwed up with this. And they're like, Mm -hmm. I know what to pray for. Well, Mm -hmm. the saints who are in heaven, those who have gone before us, they really know better because they are now completely united and they are not the the sin which clots our own arteries and our mind. They don't have that. And so they can pray perfectly for us in a way that we can't. So apart from the apostles, big A, I mean, capital A apostles, the yeah. 12 disciples or whatever, and Paul, um, where where can we find that in scripture? That would be my question. Is it, like where can where can I find that that the saints that are to come after the apostles? I mean, because this is the, the probably the classic Protestant question. But like, where where do I find that? How do I get yeah. evidence for that? To be the well, case? I mean, I can't give authority. you a proof text about about. I mean, you know, Nick is right. That there's no command that we speak to those. Um, you know, who have gone before us. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it's all implicit, but, Mm -hmm. but that's one of the differences I think between Catholics and most Protestants is that Mm -hmm. while we acknowledge that everything is in scripture, it's not said explicitly. Um, And Mm -hmm. so for many things we have, we have to, you know, we have to kind of go beyond the letter of scripture in order to to understand it spiritually. And so to me, you know, the, the great cloud of witnesses from Hebrews and the the depiction Mm -hmm. of what's happening in, in, uh, in heaven and revelation, uh, you know, that to me, and then the, the, the evidence that the church has accepted this practice from fairly early on, um, is, is good enough for me. Um, it's kind of like relics, you know, a lot of people are like, well, relics, that's superstitious. But then you read in the book of Acts, you know, kind of a similar topic, you know, there are these women who go up to Paul and they're like pressing their handkerchiefs on him and then going and healing people with them. And you're like, Oh, first class relic, you know, uh, or at least Elijah's bones or Elijah's bones. So yeah. Does that command us to do these things? Well, no, but it seems to indicate that this is well within this is well within what what the scripture is talking about. Interesting. But yeah, I can't give you a, I can't give you a, a proof text that says uh, yeah. go and do this. All I can say yeah. is it, it it's fitting with what is in scripture, and I don't find it I don't find that it goes against it, except insofar as as Nick pointed out, you can do these things with a sort of an idolatrous intent or something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But that's, you know, but that's true of everything. Like, I yeah. mean, I think yeah. people are yeah. often idolatrous about when they're yeah. getting married, they're a bit idolatrous about their spouses. And then yeah. they discover that they must be knocked off their pedestals. Uh, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. all human, all human things are subject to this reality is we're either going to use them as an icon through which we see see Christ, or we're going to use them as an idol and it's going to block us from Christ. Yeah. Uh, but as far as the saints go, 
you know, St. John Henry Newman said that, you know, he was worried about this. And a good priest told him that you can never love Mary too much as long as you love the Lord Jesus even more. And I think that's, I think that's, I think that's preachable even to ordinary Catholics and they can understand that. But. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Nick, you were going to, you, you look like you had something to say. Yeah. So. Okay. So I, I like I consider that pastorally inadvisable to pray to saints. One, as I said before, I don't know if they can even hear you. But secondly, I just, I think that people do need to order themselves relative to coming to Jesus as their mediator, to see him in his full doctrine of humanity as the high priest who suffered all things, to see him in that, um, in the sense of Ephesians three, that it's through the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we can now come to him with freedom and confidence. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's, it's, um, it would be, encourage like what we should encourage in the pastoral office that people should come to Christ Jesus as that mediator himself so that we have to be rightly ordered in doing so. Right now I have a certain amount of sympathy for women to have a object of a object of devotion or a personal saint that is a woman. Like there's a certain amount of like devotion to Mary, especially among women that I have some sympathy for, but it's still not something that I would pastorally point people towards, right? Now, secondly, one of the areas relative to this in Catholic, that I think this gets at in Catholic theology is the willingness of Roman Catholics in their theology to develop spiritual practices and beliefs based on suggestions or ways that you could work out scripture in terms of its like allegory or typology, or that this thing is sort of like that other thing, as opposed to it being a direct teaching of didactic scripture or what's clearly affirmed in the narrative of the text. So like there is a different way of interpreting scripture in that um, Protestants tend to focus on that more grammatical historical method of like, what, like what it's like when I meet a Christian who is doing everything the apostle Paul directly tells us to do in first Corinthians and Ephesians and Colossians and first Timothy, and they got all that down, then maybe we can start praying to saints. But like, I just, like I was reading a Roman Catholic spirituality manual recently that was partly based on um, the Jesuits, but it was talking about like four or five major spiritual steps. And the first couple were, were like really good. And then like you didn't get far down the line, which is like praying the rosary every day as a like one of if you like he's only telling people like seven things to do as a Christian to really draw close to God and grow in piety. And one of those is praying the rosary. And I just think that's ludicrous. Like if you're going to pray the rosary, buddy, that is way that is dozens and dozens of spiritual actions down the line. Like there's so many things to do before that, even if it was valid. And even if it was good rather than bad, I think it's probably a little bit bad. What's right? bad about the rosary? I think that – okay, so like, one is I feel like we should go back to what the early monks did, which was to have a rosary in which they recited their way through the Psalms as prayers, right? Or <laughs> if maybe if we had 10 Our Fathers and one Hail Mary, maybe we could do that. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Um I think I, the only thing I think is wrong with the Hail Mary is the last, last sentence. Right. right? Holy Mary, mother of God, totally fine. The only thing I object to is pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. I don't know that she can hear you. I don't know that she can do that. And as a human person, even glorified, I'm not sure that she has, she has omnicompetence of mentality that she can receive that prayer from millions and millions and millions of people and convert that all into prayer towards Jesus as the one mediator. I just, I don't think that's probably ontologically possible. So I, I think those people are all wasting their time spending all that yeah. work in piety other than that maybe Christ sees that and applies that piety to himself. But why do that when you can just 
pray to the Lord Jesus who hears you and has told you to pray to him. I just, I don't think that should be done. And, and this gets it like where I would say as a Protestant, I would say, okay, listen, we can do some speculative theology. We can say, well, this is like that in scripture. So maybe this or that is okay. So maybe relics are okay to venerate. Okay. Or maybe, but you got to hold that way the heck down the line from the stuff that you can deduce from the clear teaching of didactic, like the scripture teaching, right? If you do all the stuff scripture teaches first, then okay, get you can get to some of this allegorical or this is like that kind of stuff. But this is where I think a lot of this comes from. A lot of the stuff that I object to in Roman Catholicism is determined doctrinally by the this is like that thing rather than the apostles teaching it. And listen, I'm pretty busy as a pastor just trying to get the people by church to consider doing and believing the things the apostles explicitly teach or that Jesus does in the gospels and the epistles. Well, you know, I mean, look, I, I sympathize with that, but I do think that that's, that's part of the weakness of the Protestant case as you say, well, all of the direct stuff. Well, then, you know, this is one of the questions that people would argue about when I was a Protestant. It's like, well, then wh when do you do baptism and how do you do baptism? And do you, you know, I mean, even sort of basic, like you said, well, we at least get the, the two sacraments that we, that we have, right? The uh, baptism and the Eucharist. But people can't even agree about those. Do you, use, do you use wine or do you use, I mean, all of those questions are kind of left up. And, I, that, and that's the thing is that it's the approach to the Bible that I think uh, separates, you know, most Catholics from Protestants is that although Catholics say, yeah, it's all in there. Uh, nevertheless, it's not laid out in a didactic fashion. And even in the most important things, it's it's not laid out in terms of, I mean, you know, I mean, take let's take Luther for a second. Yeah, but I would argue the Catholic Church got the Eucharist wrong. Like, I, I don't yeah, think transubstantiation no, yeah. is probably right. But then secondly, they didn't give the cup to the lady for hundreds of years. Well, yeah, but, the, but that's, that's – I that's just think that's just straightforwardly wrong. Yes, but here's the question. I mean, this, this came out of these debates though. It's like – what it what when you receive the Eucharist, what do you receive? You receive the entire Christ, and it's not as if his body and his blood are separated. And well, oh no, I didn't get any blood. It's whenever you receive, even the, from the cup or from the host, you receive the whole Christ. Now you might say, well, maybe we shouldn't. You know, maybe we should. That's irrelevant. Separate them, and it's a or better. Like if, if you use your your like your your yeah. like if you like if you use yeah. your like. Um, derived theology to overcome the practice instituted by our Lord, which is that he offers the bread and cup to believers and believers should partake in it. Like it literally yeah. says by the apostle Paul in first Corinthians says, this is the Lord's supper. Not just that yeah. the Lord is quote who is eaten, but it's like, it belongs to him. Like when yeah. you don't do it his way, you're doing it wrong. Like, like, like I, I agree with you. Like if you're but, like, but well, that, well, Nick, if Jesus is point, present, right? is he just as much in the bread as in the wine? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But Jesus gave the bread and the wine to his church. Sure, and maybe that's better. But, uh, you know, but but again, it, the, the truth that comes out of that, I think, is important. Right. Is that, well, how do we do the Eucharist properly? Now, I think you have I think you have a sign that that uh, the Sunday service should follow a pattern that all of the Eucharistic liturgies developed. I mean, you see it already in the the 150s with Justin Martyr's description of what Christians do. But yet, you know, most Protestants don't do that on a Sunday. Their, their order is a little bit different. Well, why? Well, because I think that there was already a, a, a tradition. And Paul's letters come 20 years after, you know, 15 to 20 years after uh, Pentecost. In other words, the church lived on 
the tradition and that lived understanding of the Old Testament as interpreted by, by the disciples. And it's not as if they were an incomplete church until Paul wrote his letters and then we got, you know, Hebrews, whoever wrote that, and Revelation. Um, in other words, the church lives off her tradition and the New Testament adds to it in a sense, but it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, make anything more than what's already there. It just explicitly lays down a few things, but the way in which the Eucharistic service should be is, is basically a matter of tradition. Um, and, you know, so I, I mean, I'm okay sure. with that, but yeah, one I more think let me, let me get one more point on the rosary. Cause I forgot to say this. We got onto something else. One of the things that people don't understand about the rosary is that it's actually a meditative prayer. And so when you pray the rosary, when you're saying these Hail Marys and Our Fathers and Glory Bees, you're mm-hmm. supposed to be meditating upon the, the scriptural mystery, right? So, uh, you know, the first glorious mystery is Christ's resurrection. Um, that's a, it's a meditative prayer. And the, the words are, you know, of course, using sacred words, but your mind is supposed to be ruminating upon that mystery of Christ who is now defeated death. So it's not, I mean, although it's a Marian prayer, right, it's a meditation upon this from the standpoint of Mary. So I think a lot of people think it's really all about sort of like nagging Mary to do something for me, but it's really supposed to be praying with her, the one who pondered all these things in her heart. So I just wanted to get that in because I yeah. I'd forgotten. Yeah, to, that's, to I mean, that's why like, I, I know some of my Protestant friends that think that I'm softballing this with you, but like my objection to some of the Roman Catholic stuff that I object to that, yeah. well, that I wouldn't pastorally encourage is not yeah. because I think it's the antichrist or it's like, it's not really that. It's just like, I think it's irrelevant. I think, I, th- I think it was like, I think that like we got focused on something and it just grew and grew and grew in the tradition until something that's mm-hmm. really separated from what Jesus and the apostles taught has become like this big thing. And it's kind of like, well, this is a big thing. And you're like, well, no, what happened is like in your tradition, you built on it and built on it and built on it. It became a really big thing. And yeah. all of the steps of speculative leaps all seem really reasonable. So this seems like a really reasonable thing. It seems like a true development, but it could just be like you've you've literally walked out into the Merkwood of speculation. And now you're so far from what the apostles actually taught that you're you're spending your time and energy in piety in something that is just like com- like completely irrelevant almost to piety. So like, why not come up with a series? Like, listen, I would love for the Roman Catholic church to come up with a series of meditative prayers on divine mysteries that I could pray with a little rosary, like set of beads where I could, I could pray a prayer about the, like the humanity and divinity of Jesus. One of them could even have Mary as the main theme. I would be totally for that. But like, and, and when I read like the spiritual, like devotional guide, it just, I mean, it said, yeah, like be meditative when you pray to Mary, but the, the that author included praying to Mary through the rosary on the way to work. So you yeah. could get it done, but you still prayed the rosary, which yeah. didn't sound super pietistic to me. Well, yeah, but a lot of people get, I mean, you know, look, I mean, I was a Protestant and have your quiet, having your quiet time with scripture, Humans can screw up almost any form of piety, no matter what. Um, but I, you know, and look, I'm not saying that everybody has to pray the rosary. Um, some people actually, Therese of Lisieux, the famous the, uh, 19th century saint, she didn't like the rosary. It's it's okay to not like forms of devotion, 
But when they're when they're this hallowed by this many generations of people taking something up, I, I think they're fine. Now, here's something else: is that there are a number of forms of piety within the Catholic tradition, and some people like to pray the Jesus prayer. I mean, this is in the Orthodox tradition as well, which is simply praying, "Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner." But then there's also the Liturgy of the Hours, which is the you know morning prayer. Uh, evening prayer, night prayer, the office of readings, all, you know, so there are, there are all sorts of forms of, of both scriptural and traditional, uh, you know, yeah. uh, meditation, which do the Psalms, you know, which you referred to. Right. Which um, I don't object to that. Like, like, like there's some Protestants, there's some yeah. Protestants that truly object to like standardized prayers, like having a yeah. prayer book or any of that kind of stuff. I yeah, do yeah, not yeah. agree with that. I believe that like making every Christian make up their prayers every single time is incredibly tedious. And it's like writing your own vows at your wedding. Like I, like I am, <laughs> I just am not a, like, I, I think, I think you could live an entire Christian life and only rarely pray spontaneous prayers. And I think that you might be better off than the person who thinks they have to come up with a good spontaneous prayer every single time they pray. Okay. So like, I, I totally believe that that is, and that gets back to like nature and grace and like, what is a good anthropology? What are human beings? What are mm-hmm. However, this still gets back to like, but still the Hail Mary. Like for me, it's not, it's not these other accoutrements that are rooted in our humanity that the Catholic church gets right because it's, it was rooted in human life before the modern period. And so it gets a lot of these cyclical life-based human things really, really good. I love that. The thing I don't love (laughs) is the, the theologies that I think are built upon speculation, upon speculation, upon speculation, which are quote doctrinal developments that I just think are more and more getting off track one degree yeah. at a time in that development such that it, it, we then teach the laity and even the clergy to pay more attention to doctrines that come from a long list of speculations rather than uh, that are explicitly taught by the apostles and by Christ in the biblical documents themselves, which I think should be the heart of our piety, devotion, and practice. Yeah. So if, yeah, I, I think- if I could be a Roman Catholic – and we and like participate in all the discussions, but like in my church, I w- we were more liturgical, but like we focused on the Bible and what it says and how we could be spiritual. I'd be fine with that, but I just don't think that's what's happening right now. Well, I think I look. I think that's perfect. I think you can do that. And like I said, there's no there's no particular devotions that are that are required. And when you see, so for instance, there's the litany of the saints that has its place in the liturgy at several pl- places, but also in other places. But you know, it makes those distinctions, right? You you appeal to the Lord a number of times, and it's always the response is save us. And then when you get to the saints, no matter how many you know iterations of of Mary under different titles, it's always pray for us. And so those distinctions mm-hmm. are made, I think, in uh, in most of these. But they, again, I don't, from, you know, from my own experience, having more devotion to Mary has not taken me off track, uh, but instead it's led me back to Christ himself. Um, and that's what I think is most remarkable about even her place in the scripture. She doesn't get a lot of lines, but she's really important. Anytime Mary is there, something big's going to happen. You know, she's, she appears, the angel Gabriel now predicts the birth of the Messiah. She's there when Christ is, is uh, found in the temple and he gives the great answer. Did you not know that I have to be in my father's house? She's she was there, there when the- more alcohol was needed. She was there, yes. And this is the great at the yes, first that, miracle, 
right? The first miracle is that Jesus partied with his mother, as, you know, mm-hmm. according to some Protestant friends. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but you know, she is there. I mean, even, I mean, this is something that I don't even think I, I noticed, even though I'd probably read it dozens of times. But at Pentecost, like, you know, uh, who's there? Well, the apostles are there in the upper room, and they are there with the mother of Jesus praying. I mean, she's at the very center of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? Because she is herself, uh, you know, the sort of the model of the redeemed, the one who is most divinely favored, as some some uh, some translations have it, or full of grace. Uh, mm-hmm. However, however you will, she is the one who's who is the model of the redeemed, and everything she does points back to Jesus. Do whatever yeah. he says. So, like, I agree, yeah. I will agree with you uh, that some people can treat her as like an excuse to stay away from the Lord because he's too judgy or something like that. Uh, but mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be that way. And I think any healthy devotion is going to yes. to do what she yeah. says, and that's point to him. So, well, you know. I would concede Dave, if I prayed to Peter and Paul, then I would pray to Mary. Yeah, I just don't pray you to any. I do it all. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Let's. Uh, I mean, we got to wrap this up. Um, but uh, there is, I guess, one slash two questions that I wanted to do quickly do at the end of this. Obviously, because there's people listening. There's actually you guys agreed on on a decent amount of things, but there's obviously certain fundamental disagreements between uh, a lot of Protestants. A lot of Catholics, a lot of Protestants and Catholics and everything in between. Uh, I, my, my question is, and either of you could take this first, um, it, what are, I guess, what are some ways that Catholics and Protestants, Protestants can have unity? And um, yeah, so let's just start there. What, what are some ways that Catholics and Protestants can have unity? You want to start, Nick, or you want me to? Yeah, you go ahead. I've got I've got some ideas, but okay. Well, I mean, I think one of the things is, I mean, and this is one of the you know, if if you think things are bad lately and it's the end of the world, one of the good things about that is I think that it's driven people uh, who do serve Christ to see those those things that are in common and that love of Christ. I mean, you know, this is the scourge of abortion uh, in in the United States. Legalized abortion has brought many people together to fight for life, and what they've discovered. Is that in praying for you know praying for reform of our laws on this and the questions of euthanasia, um, they've been able to get together and serve the common good in those ways. And I think that uh, you know those practical elements of serving the poor, of trying to reform reform our laws and provide opportunities for people to serve life, I think are very important. And I think uh, you know again. Um, it, I think it extends to prayer. Now, you know, older versions of, you know, of Catholic law and and sometimes uh, advice and sometimes Protest is don't ever pray with these people. But you see at things like, uh, you know, a Roe v. Wade Day ceremony, we always, when we lived in Minnesota, we would always go to the cathedral, which seated 3,000 people, and we would have an ecumenical prayer service for life. And I think Praying those very common things uh, together is is very important, uh, but I think the other thing is is praying for each other and also sticking up for each other in the in the public sphere uh, because you know there's there's not enough Christian belief out there that we can sort of you know simply ah eh, they're just Baptists ah eh, they're just Catholics uh, we do have to stick together and we have to defend uh, where those who are uh, separated brethren from one direction or another 
are, are right. And then we have to take those opportunities of, of speaking together about Christ and about his, his grace and his mercy. And in, in certain situations, praying together, I think that those are important. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree on, on uh, especially like social voice, that kind of stuff. I think I think the pro-life movement has been the clearest example of that. I also think that ministries to the poor have been another good example of that. I think Protestant and Roman, and Roman Catholics, mostly because there just haven't been that many Orthodox numerically in America for most of our history. Right. Um, Protestants and Catholics have led the way in charity in America. And even the places where the government has then pulled the funding into the government and then tried to take control of those areas – it's, it's still using institutions that were started by Christians like hospitals, for example. Um, and so I also think there is a certain amount of co-nourishment. And even if you don't think Protestants and Catholics are nourishing each other theologically, which I think they are, I think once you get into other academic disciplines, Roman Catholics and Protestants are asking similar questions, doing similar kinds of research, working on similar kinds of questions. So like there are some Roman Catholic sociologists that are studying things about like people's lives in America and finding conclusions that like a lot of secular sociologists would never ask the questions those ways to come up with information that would be helpful to Protestant Christians or Catholic Christians. Does that make sense? So there's a lot of Catholics. So like, for example, defending the history of Christianity and the history of Europe, for example, there's a lot of Roman Catholics that have worked on that and a lot of Protestants that have worked on that. And so the work of like Rodney Stark, like helps both Catholics and Protestants in like talking about what the Crusades were really like or how the West won relative to like economic development in its relationship to Christian belief or the age of science. Like was, was Galileo horribly mistreated by the church or was he kind of a jerk who like did theology while he was pretending to do science and he was put in house arrest in like a beautiful villa rather than a prison. Like, like clearing up all that, all those kinds of academic questions. Catholics are interested in vindicating Christianity because they're trying to vindicate Catholicism. But when they vindicate Catholicism, they often vindicate Christianity for us as well, right? So like there's a lot of like shared work. You see this in also in like think tanks. Like if you go to the Heritage Foundation or the American Enterprise Institution or some of these institutions that are like like pushing in certain directions culturally, you'll find Roman Catholics and Protestants working together on political issues, policy issues, research issues. And there's a lot of that happening. I go to a conference most years called the Acton Institute and – the people who go to Acton are from like 200 different countries, and it's it's about half evangelicals, about half Roman Catholics. And so and most of those are like, what is politics? What is economics? How do we understand these questions? How should we function in these areas? How do we do real good in social contexts in inner cities and so on? And those conversations are shared. And so like innovations, High Point has used in reaching out to the poor and doing work across ethnic lines. I've gotten some of that from Roman Catholic brothers at places like Acton Institute. Lastly, I think I actually do believe we're one church and there are ways in which um, the Church of Jesus Christ is functioning even like with us together. Like I pastored a bunch of Roman Catholic kids when I was their volleyball coach and I didn't try to make them Protestants. I tried to increase their piety in Jesus and I didn't speak against their Catholicism. And I saw Catholic and Protestant kids sitting in culvers kind of debating their faiths with each other. And I'd get in there when it wasn't when it was getting heated and kind of cooled it off a little bit and saw them all like as teenagers and encouraging each other's faiths. And that cooperation that happened on that sports team was with Roman Catholic and Protestant families that thought that there was actually a religious benefit to their faith being on this team with Protestant homeschool kids. Right. And then lastly, I would say this. I think that religious co-belligerence, like fighting with each other well, is actually good for us. So uh, there, there are views that I have that I have, been, I have changed because Roman Catholics have attacked my view 
and they were right about certain things that they were saying, and I needed to adjust my view. And nobody but a Roman Catholic could have made that particular argument, where they were Christian from a particular perspective, saying a certain kind of thing, such that I had to deal with a thing. And that made it be better when I talked to secularists and maybe a better pastor of Protestants. And I think I've done that with Roman Catholics as well. And so I think that there's uh, us fighting with each other in a good way that helps us keep us sharp, keep us careful. And, and it helps, I think it will, I think Protestants have reformed Catholicism over the last 600 years. I think some of the Catholic changes were a positive response to Protestantism as well as some of the negative reactionary reactions to Protestantism. And I also think that there have been ways in which Protestants, especially in the last century, have recognized that Catholics had had just frankly superior thinking in certain academic realms. And we used, we just pulled in a lot of their stuff like we were plundering the Egyptians to try to make our political philosophy, our, our economic philosophy more sophisticated. And so I think that there are ways in which where, where we fight each other well, fight with each other well, like an arguing couple, um, we actually get better. And so hopefully people experience this today. I think it's important for our listeners. Let me say just one more thing about this conversation. There's a difference between having an argument with that you're, where you're trying to be what's called irenic, which is arguing towards peace, like trying to argue towards peace versus just having an argument where you're trying to win like a debate, right? And I think David, I, I feel like David and I, I've tried to myself be irenic in how we were arguing. I could have been a lot more like attacky in this and I'm sure David could have as well. And yeah. um, I think that um, when we are ironic, when we're trying to argue honestly with each other towards peace, we do our best work. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned. I, I mean, I've been a participant in many Acton events, and it is a great place because it's, you know, ostensibly it's about economics and politics and stuff. But of course, everybody breaks out and they're talking about <laughs> they're talking about theology. So it's really wonderful. Mm-hmm. I mean, another another area to. Uh, you know, you brought up several, but uh, I, I'm reminded that I have to write a, a recommendation letter for a former student who's a law student for ADF, uh, known as Alliance Defending Freedom. Right. Uh, you know, it's a great, they have a great fellowship for law students that teach them how to defend religious liberty. And it's, again, yeah. it's a good mix of of Catholics and Protestants, uh, you know, a few, right. a few Orthodox as well. But, uh, you know, I right. think there's just some, some wonderful things happening. And, as, as, as Nick pointed out, arguing towards peace, but not peace as distinct from truth, but peace in the truth, I think is, is, is the best way to go and, and actually showing that love. So, yeah, so, I yeah, think I, one example from the last few years is like, listen, I rejoiced when Amy Coney Barrett was put on the Supreme Court and she's a Catholic, but yeah. I think she's a relatively pious one and comes from a Catholic legal tradition. And there is hardly any difference between that Catholic legal tradition, what I think is best um, with Scalia's and with what I think would be a good Protestant one. So like there are ways in which in public life and stuff um, – and, and the pro- here's, here's the reality. Protestantism just has not produced believing high-level legal scholars that have gotten to that level. But for some reason, Roman Catholics have because of institutions like Notre Dame and other things that they have done. And so um, I benefit from that phenomenon within Roman Catholicism that produced that particular person, you know? Yeah. I do yeah. think that split between sort of, you know, like I said, I, I, for myself, I understand, you know, what I don't like in Protestantism are certain splits. And one of them is between a kind of piety or spirituality and then other stuff. And so you get, and, and, and you, know, you get, you get this in the Catholic tradition sometimes too, like 
well, clergy and and monks and nuns, they're kind of the religious specialists, and we're just going to pay, pray, and obey. But in Protestantism, it tends to work out towards, you know, well, unless you're doing full-time Christian service, you're not doing, you know, you're not doing the Lord's work. And so there's a kind of split between, well, my legal work or my business work or mm-hmm. or whatever, and then my mm-hmm. faith life. Whereas, you know, the insights that, uh, you know, that both Catholics and Protestants had about service of the Lord through all areas of life sometimes does go go by the wayside. Um, I worked at a Protestant summer camp for four summers. I remember I had a student or a, not a student, uh, a uh, camp counselor who told me, oh, I never read any books other than the Bible. And I said, you know, you're an engineering student. I hope you're reading your engineering stuff. And he's like, oh, I read that. But, you know, it was it was sort of a sense that you know, I, I only do that. That's my job. But, you know, that's completely split from my faith life. And, uh, you know, that, like I said, I think that there's a certain way in which that comes from Protestant ways of thinking, but it's not, it's not completely alien to Catholics either who can sometimes, you know, keep these things in separate boxes and, and lack true integrity. So, yeah. 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 Well, uh, we can, I guess we'll, we'll wrap this up uh david thanks for coming on the podcast i mean this is it was really interesting i had a fun time listening uh and and asking questions um i think it's something that people are interested in a lot of people who listen to our podcast are live in the midwest and more specifically in in wisconsin and so there's a heavy catholic influence in the midwest and so um sometimes we're us as Protestants are in the minority. And so I think it's good for us to have these conversations and to, and to battle these things out and, and, and talk about this. Uh, but yeah, yeah just thank I, you so I much. Think, for- I think the true division in the Christian church is nominalism and piety, not Catholic Protestant. I think that there yeah. are, th- the right. church has, has like, people just don't know anything about Jesus. Don't believe in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Aren't committed to him. Don't know what it means to really be his and belong to his body. And then there are some who do. And I have like, I was this, the Roman Catholic Bishop that I met with, he said, listen, I have more in common with you than with a lot of people who are ostensibly Roman Catholics. He mm-hmm. says, I don't have any trouble saying that. And it's not even really in some ways against our doctrine. Um, because those who have been, who, who clearly are a, living in apostasy, but are in the Roman Catholic church yeah. are further than me from sundered brethren. And so like, I think that they're even, even though the, the church, the churches are not closer to getting back together with each other. Than they have been. I think that there is this like as as America struggles with its religious identity more and as it less sees itself as a in some way Christ haunted nation, then then like Leslie Newlebegin said, we less and less define define ourselves as Christians over against the Christians we're not like and more over against non-Christianity. And that usually is going to draw the Christians together. And it's also going to change the way we identify ourselves. So I don't say, well, I'm a Protestant because I'm not a Catholic. I'm like, no, I'm a, I'm a Protestant because I'm a Christian. And this other guy's a Catholic is a Christian and we're not, not Christians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? And that has intensified yeah. as America secularized. It's put, put this like pressure of us towards each other, which I think I hope is the providence of, of God in like mm-hmm. trying to work out with his, his quote, true church, what he wills. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, David, is is there anything you want to? I mean, is there anywhere where people can find you or uh, you know? Yeah. Um, well, so I yeah yeah. I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm you know that's really about the only major social media I'm on. But mm-hmm. I teach at the University of St. Thomas. You can find me. 
stthom.edu. You can find me there. And I'm a, a senior fellow at the Imaginative Conservative. Uh, so I usually have an article there every week or week or other week, depending on depending on how things are going. And I I write weekly columns for AMAC, the, the conservative AARP. So you can usually find those on Sunday at AMAC.us. And then everything else, you know, uh, well, I'm hoping to be made famous by being on your podcast again. <laughs> okay, well, well, let, let, let us know how that goes. All right. <laughs> okay. um, but we do appreciate you coming on the podcast. If, if you listen to this podcast, you like it, make sure you give it, uh, give it a five star rating, leave us a review, um, like, subscribe, follow, share this with your friends, and we'll see you all in the next one. Goodbye.